Hey, deserving listeners, this is chapter two in my attachment theory deep dive. Let me tell you something. I love attachment theory. It explains so many things and is such a good guide, not only for my clinical work, but also just for my personal life. Attachment theory involves so many different things. It's related to so many different things that we think about, the way we relate to each other. I would guess that every fight you've ever been in with your partner is 99% related to attachment theory. Every unfortunate personality trait of yours or of anyone you've ever met is probably related to attachment theory. Nearly every diagnosis in the DSM is related to attachment development. And don't take my word for it. This is heavily researched. In the past 10, 20 years, a lot, thousands of, of scientists have looked, have looked into the connection between attachment theory development and relationships, divorce, psychopathology, uh, etc. And so uh, conspiracy theories, like people who are into conspiracy theories, for example, uh, there's a relation to attachment theory. Pedophilia, um, pornography use, alcoholism, um, let alone anxiety, depression, this kind of thing. So it, it's, it's incredibly uh, important, I think, for everyone, lay people and otherwise, clinicians, to understand attachment theory in um, its entirety because it's, it's very important. So in this episode, I'm going to talk for probably five-plus hours about attachment theory. Chapter one, the previous chapter, was about the history of attachment theory, mainly talking about John Bowlby. But this episode is going to be a deep dive into the actual theory. And this is probably the core episode of this deep dive series on attachment theory. I'm going to fully explain the theory, and I'm going to present hundreds of studies that will illuminate the nuances of the theory. But first, I want to present two different stories about attachment. These are two actual individuals who have what I would consider to be somewhat typical presentations of insecure attachment. As a caveat before I tell these stories, I, I just want to say that these are not universal. When we're trying to categorize or, um, I don't know, provide a typology of human experience, we always run into problems because there's a wide variety of, of people and, and presentations and, and lives. So just take that into account. So the first story I have here is what I would consider to be a somewhat typical story of what we would call avoidant attachment. So someone who avoids attachment as uh, for reasons related to their upbringing. So this is a, a guy, a boy born into a family. He grows up in a cold family, a family that wasn't extremely warm or loving. It wasn't a terrible family, but just not extremely warm. He was a happy kid, so his parents didn't feel the need to pay close attention to him. He was often left to his own devices as a child. His parents praised him for being so independent and responsible. Sometimes his parents were overly stern with him. They would discipline him in, in harsh ways, but not too harsh. He was good at sports, and he was good in school. In high school, he went through a tough breakup with a girlfriend, and he decided he would never allow himself to be vulnerable like that ever again. In college, he dated women, but he never allowed himself to get too close. He broke a lot of hearts. He drank a lot of alcohol. He had a lot of sex. He sometimes bragged too much. In his 20s, he eventually let his guard down and he fell in love again. 
His girlfriend complained about how distance, how distant he was sometimes. After a couple years, he found himself often fantasizing about being single again. <clears throat> Excuse me. But he didn't really talk about that. He, he just fantasized in his own mind about being single again. He never really talked about his inner life with other people. He didn't think others would care. <clears throat> and he didn't think that others would really understand. He was still drinking socially. Sometimes he drank too much. Sometimes he worried about his marijuana use as well. He often felt alone, but he didn't know how to reach out to other people. People saw him as being very strong, very emotionally strong. People saw him as someone who never really got over-emotional. People saw him as someone who had built a very good life. He was very dependable. He eventually got married. It was a good marriage. But then the marriage started to get kind of distant, kind of disengaged. Then it got really distant. They fought sometimes. He thought that she was very illogical and was too emotional. She thought that he was emotionless and too intellectual and too narcissistic. Then his wife said that she wanted a divorce. To him, this was completely out of the blue. He was devastated. Someone told him that he should go to therapy, so he did. He didn't really want to go, but he, was in a cri- but he was in a crisis, so he thought he should go. In therapy, he didn't know what to talk about, but over time he learned that he had an avoidant attachment style. He avoided his attachment needs by appearing strong and independent, but deep down he was suffering from chronic loneliness, and his independent nature pushed other people away. And through this therapeutic relationship with a therapist that understood attachment theory, he began to heal from his early attachment injuries. Okay, so that is a story, what I would consider to be a somewhat typical story of someone with insecure attachment or specifically avoidant attachment. And I'll go into more detail on what avoidant attachment is. This next story is what I would consider to be a typical story of what we would call a preoccupied attachment style. This is a girl. She grows up in a chaotic family. Her parents fought a lot, and they fought in front of her. Her dad would drink too much and disappear overnight sometimes. She remembered trying to soothe her mom when she was upset. She was okay in school. She had a lot of friends. She was more mature than her peers. Her teachers praised her a lot for being more mature, being more responsible. She was good in drama class. In high school, she thought about boys a lot. She had a tendency to develop intense crushes on boys. And she would later say that she was always attracted to the bad boys. She tried to find Mr. Right, but she kept getting hurt, really hurt. As an adult, she had a number of intense relationships with boys, with young men, romantic relationships, but also with friends. She tended to have intense best friend relationships that sometimes ended badly. Most of the time, the romantic relationships would end quite badly. A number of times, she thought she actually had met Mr. Wright. With each one, she would fantasize about getting married and having a family with him. With some of them, they would even talk about getting married quite intensely. She really liked talking about marriage and building a family life together, Um, you know, talking about, she really liked to talk about marriage and talk about building a family and a future together. She often thought about that. She often talked about that. Then one of her boyfriends cheated on her. So she ended that relationship very quickly. 
Then another boyfriend refused to plan for the future. He would get very upset or distant when she would bring the topic up. So they broke up over time. Another boyfriend became too emotional when they fought, and they broke up over that issue. After each breakup, she was devastated. She would think she was so stupid for falling in love again. She would think she was so stupid for allowing herself to be um, tricked by these pigs that were these boyfriends. She universally thought all of her ex-boyfriends were not good boys, <laughs> that they were terrible people. I'm trying not to swear. And she had trouble controlling her emotions. Sometimes when she was particularly stressed out, she would think about suicide. She also started to realize that other people didn't care as much about loyalty as she did. She realized that she had, to, she had a lot of love to give, but no one really cared about love these days. She, she would say, I have so much love to give, but it just seems like no one else cares about love and attachment as much as I do. Sometimes she cried herself to sleep at night, hoping that someone would really understand her, but she was really quite hopeless that she would ever find someone that would really understand her. She, did, she decided to go to therapy. She found a good therapist who listened well. She really liked her therapist. She really liked her therapist. She wanted to go to therapy all the time. She convinced her therapist to see her twice a week. She felt like things were going really well in therapy, but then her therapist seemed bored one day, and she got the sense that her therapist didn't really care. So in the next session, she was quiet and reserved because she didn't know what to do. She didn't know if she should say anything. And when the therapist asked about it, she didn't know what to say. Over time, the therapist told her that she had signs of preoccupied attachment. This led, a, this led to a lot of discoveries for her in her explorations with her therapist, and she began to heal from her attachment injuries through this therapeutic relationship. So that's a typical story of someone with preoccupied attachment. If you can relate to either of these stories, then I encourage you to continue listening because in each of these chapters, I'm going to talk about these two presentations quite a bit because they're really quite common. As I said in the beginning, these are not universal. It's not like every preoccupied person presents this way. It's, not, it's, it's impossible to categorize all of human experience in this way. But the elements are similar, and I'll get more into that later. So I apologize to non-patrons. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you, want to be, if you want to hear this whole episode and all the other chapters on my attachment deep dive, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, you'll get instructions on how to access these, these uh, deep dives along with uh, hundreds of other deep dives, including deep dives on narcissistic personality disorder, uh, and several other personality disorders, suicide, other, other important issues. So go to patreon.com and become a patron now. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thanks for joining me here. Love you so much. So before we get into attachment theory, let's just briefly summarize the main contributors to attachment theory. Of course, we want to start with John Bowlby, a British psychoanalyst. He was active with his attachment theory publication and research from the 1930s until his death in 1990. 
He was the one who started it all. Without him, we probably wouldn't even know about attachment theory, in my estimation. Then came Mary Ainsworth. She was an American-Canadian psychologist born in Ohio. She was a colleague of Bowlby in London. She was active from about in attachment theory from about 1950 until her death in 1999. Then we have Mary Main. She was Ainsworth's student. She was is an American psychologist at Berkeley. She was active in attachment theory publications from 1970s until today. She's still around today. Then we have Peter Fonagy, who is a Hungarian-born British psychoanalyst working in London. And Fonagy was and is active from 1990s until today. So those are the four people. We got Bowlby, Ainsworth, Maine, and Fonagy. Okay, so let's get into the core foundation of attachment theory. The core foundation, as far as I am concerned, is the idea of evolution, aka evolutionary psychology or ethology. Bowlby asserted and provided a lot of evidence that we all evolved to attach. We evolved to attach to our primary caregivers, and we evolved as caregivers to facilitate that attachment with our children. Basically, the idea is is that evolutionary selection favored attachment behaviors in children because it increased the likelihood of the child and parent being close in close proximity to each other called parent-child proximity. And this parent-child proximity increases the likelihood of a lot of good things for survival, like protection from predators. This is the primary effect. Or getting food, because the closer, the closer you are to your parents, the more likely you are to get food, because when you're small, you don't have the ability to get your own food. Also, when you're close to your parents, you learn about your environment more readily, like dangers, like learning that snakes are bad, or learning that cliffs and falling is bad. We also learn being close to our parents about how to socialize, which helps children to learn how to socialize with others in the tribe, which is very important for survival, being accepted by the tribe. So that's the core of it all, is that we evolved to attach, meaning we evolved attachment behaviors to stay close to our primary caregiver. And we also evolved a lot of, so not only uh, behaviors, and I'll get into more of this later, not only behaviors like Going, making sure you go toward your caregiver when you feel upset or unsafe. But also, we evolved behaviors to call our parents towards us. And again, I'll get more to that later. So that that's the core of it, is we, we evolved in this way. You could call it an instinct. And again, the instinct is to engage in attachment behaviors, and I'll get more into like the emotions that motivate the behaviors, but what, what we can observe is definitely there's, there's a set of attachment behaviors, an attachment behavioral system, again, when, particularly when children are in danger. Sometimes this is called inherited motivation, which is another term for instinct, which I like, because instinct can be uh, misunderstood. Uh, sometimes people think it means different things. So inherited motivation is a better term. Children are born with an instinct to attach to whoever is consistently taking care of them. So it's not necessarily their biological parents. This is kind of like imprinting, right? Like the famous geese experiment. 
So we are we seem to have inherited motivation to attach to whoever is taking care of us primarily at a certain age of life, say six months to 12 months. And this is whether or not the caregiver is good. It just means that they're the, they're the person who we see the most. They're the person who seems to be coming to us when we need help the most. And therefore that's the person I am primarily attached to. Other animals are like this too, and this is the insight that Bowlby had because he looked into how ethologists were looking at how other animals behaved and what inherited motivations other animals seem to have and how, how they were looking at attachment behaviors in other animals. And, they were saying, and Bowlby was like, well, we're animals, so, and we seem to exhibit all those same attachment behaviors, so we must have evolved them too. This is a revolutionary concept at the time or at least it was uh, uh, promoted and researched and written about and made convincing by Bowlby. So getting into some other animals, I'm not sure about the differences because I'm not, this isn't my field, but many other animals seemingly evolved very uh, similar processes, similar inherited motivations for attachment behaviors, particularly other social animals who couple and or raise their young for example, other primates, right, like chimpanzees, they exhibit very similar attachment ch- child behaviors as um, as humans do, because we're all primates, right? Also, many other mammals, like bears and seals and wolves and dogs and cats and beavers, etc. These these mammals are social mammals. I don't know the language for this, but they raise their young. It's not like they're turtles where they lay their eggs on the beach and walk away. These animals have somewhat uh, defenseless creatures uh, that are born, and then so by that nature, they need to take care of them. Also, many birds, penguins, eagles, swans, will also raise their young, and the young and the parents seem to have similar attachment behaviors as humans. And even some fish, like anglefish, angelfish, angelfish. Um, The point is, is that some animals, it was beneficial to evolve this inherited motivation, this instinct, to attach to a primary caregiver. They follow the caregiver, they're upset when they're separated from the caregiver, and the caregivers also have an instinct to take care of their young. So that's that's the th- the thing that John Bowlby gave us, and that's the basis of attachment theory. So just to comment on this danger that children experienced in our early development of our species, children are are much more vulnerable uh, in the past than they are today, right? And uh, they've they've begun to look at old data and start to write a new narrative of our, uh, you know a million years ago or 200,000 years ago. We, we used to think that humans evolved to be hunters, to be predators, and certainly we did become that eventually with technology and other kinds of things. But in the beginning of our species, we were preyed upon by hyenas, by lions, etc. We were food. We were not at the top of the food chain. And it was dangerous for babies to be left alone or for little children to be left alone because hyenas, lions, etc. would be able to pick them off. And so it, uh, this, this pressure from the environment led to a selection 
for those children who were extremely clingy to their parents. This is similar for other primates, right? We used to believe, like I said, there was there, we would look at these old these old data of bones of humans in different areas, and we would think, oh, this must be a burial ground. But more recently, they're looking at the data again, and they're like, well, actually, I think that was just motivated reasoning by the narrative that we were always awesome, because they're finding teeth marks on these these classic teeth marks that show that these were probably humans that were killed and then dragged by a puma or something, and then eaten in a tree, and then the bones fell out of the tree and into a cave or something. And that's that's an interesting story that isn't often told. And so it's, it was very, very important to have the instinct as a child to engage in attachment behaviors, to cling to your parents, to cry out when you're, when you're not around your parent. Not only were there predators that would eat us, but there were also elemental things, you know, environmental things like injuring yourself or falling off a cliff or, again, the need for food and water or the need for shelter. All these things would eliminate or, you know, would cause the death of children who did not engage in attachment behaviors, would also cause the death of children to parents that did not engage in attachment behaviors. So we have a very strong instinct for attachment, similar to our strong instinct for water or food These are or sex. These are very important instincts to us. And Bowlby argued, and I would argue, that uh, it's just as strong as those instincts, if not stronger. We have a, a you know, we have a very strong—I mean, I guess if I was to rank them— I would say that we have a strong need for food and and water. That's certainly a, a compelling instinct. And I would say off the top of my head that a close second would be attachment and then sex would be probably further down the line there. So as I said earlier, the sequence of events it involves emotions too. So when we're thinking about attachment theory, we're not just looking at behaviors, but we're also thinking about the emotions that motivate the behaviors. So you have a child who is left alone or you have a child who is nine months old and is very attached to her mother and the mother leaves the room for a second and the nine-month-old nine has an emotional feeling to it. So, there's this, so the, the sequence of events is a perception of the environment. So the child perceives that the mother has left the room and the interpretation to that, which is an instinct, because universally nine-month-old children, when they're raised right, will feel this way, at least neurotypical ones, will experience that perception as a threat and will experience an emotion of despair and sadness and being upset, distress. And then that emotion will motivate certain attachment behaviors, such as crying or screaming or um, banging something, and then that is a call for the mother to return, and then when the mother returns, the child has a different emotion, which is relief and happiness and joy and a reduction of distress, and then that emotion causes smiling or laughing or calming down and, and these kinds of behaviors. So that's the sequence. is a perception, then an emotion, then a behavior. So a perception of a threat or a perception of attachment, joy, then the emotion that is compelled by instinct, 
and then the behavior that is compelled by instinct. And this is particularly uh, uh, um, noticeable in infants because infants don't have time to learn things from their society. You know, when we look at adults and our behavior, we've already learned so much from our environment. Like we didn't evolve to use Twitter, for example. We did evolve to socialize, but we didn't evolve to use Twitter. But uh, nine-month-old children around the world are nearly universal in the way that they respond to these sorts of things. When a, when a nine-month-old child, again, neurotypical, raised well, is separated from their primary caregiver, they all act the same. They all, are, they all seem to exhibit their in distress and communicate that distress. So that's why we look at that and say, well, we must have evolved that. We must have evolved that instinct to, to perceive things that way, to have the corresponding emotion and have the corresponding attachment behavior. Okay, so let's review the attachment behaviors that we can observe in people. So when children, when infants are together with their parents, they will laugh, they will play, they will have eye contact. The infants will make cooing noises, or when they're older, they'll make vocalizations or words that promote togetherness. They might reach out with their hands to touch the parent. They will exhibit that they're calm and happy. So these are all attachment behaviors, uh, and they're, they evolved to facilitate the attachment to the parent, to signal to the parent that the child appreciates what's happening, and to reward the parent emotionally for staying close to the child. There's also threats to uh, or dangers in the world that the infant will exhibit attachment behaviors, like when a stranger enters the room or a strange animal or a strange situation. In these situations, the infant is compelled to move toward their parent and maybe even hide behind their parent to get as close as their, to their parent as possible. In, the, uh, in other primates, you see this with monkeys where they will, or apes, where, where, where they will literally run and climb on top of their parents. I would uh, assume that human infants would do the same if they were better at climbing things at a young age. Also, children will scream or cry in these situations. These are all ways of signaling to the parent of the internal perception and motive and uh, emotion that the child is going through and to compel the parent to take care of that child. Also, there are attachment behaviors as associated with separation from the caregiver. The infant will look for the parent at first. They will say, wait, where'd my parent go? If they don't find them, then they will have a sad face. So the sad face, everyone's seen the pouty lip and the, you know, the look of the look of a of a sad child. It just breaks your heart, right? Crying, yelling and screaming, trying to move toward the parent, trying to find the parent. These are all separation attachment behaviors. And when the parent returns, there's a set of attachment behaviors there as well. They might all, like I said earlier, they might laugh and make nice vocalizations to signal their approval, but they might also want to signal their disapproval. They might uh, reject the parent upon returning. They might be violent toward the parent upon returning. Bowlby termed this, quote-unquote, functional anger, meaning that it's 
angry behavior in the infant that proves as a function or that um, is a function to help the parent to realize that what they did was wrong. It's a punishment to the parent so that they stop doing that, essentially. And it can later become domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and physical abuse uh, because if you – and I'll get more into this later, but I think in another chapter if I'm not mistaken. The idea is, is that if we are neglected or mistreated as children, we'll retain that behavior. So – and I'll get more into this later, but to dip into this a little bit, when – every everyone who's had a an infant or has seen an infant long enough – knows that sometimes the infant or young child will get violent, will try to punch you. They'll be upset. You know, they'll, most kids go through that phase where they're, you're, they want to stay and play at the playground and you pick them up and you say, okay, it's time to go home. And they're upset and they're like, no, I don't want to go. And you're like, I already told you, you know, we have to go in five minutes and it's five minutes. So we have to go. You pick up the child and the child will hit you across the face. It's very distressing to parents, but it's usually not very painful because the child is so weak that it doesn't actually hurt. Well, this is a effort on the child's, this is an instinct that children have as a way of communicating that they're upset about something. And sometimes they'll be upset about attachment disruptions. So the parent will be gone for too long, according to the infant. And when the infant returns, the infant will strike the parent and be angry at the parent. And if this, if a child is mistreated and they, they have a significant attachment injuries, they'll retain that behavior into adulthood. And when they feel threatened by attachment disruption with their spouses, they will have impulses to be violent, similar to that of a young child. So we have other attachment instincts, other attachment systems, not only with infant and parent, but also with caregiving, with being a parent itself. We have a set of attachment behaviors there. We also have attachment behaviors related to affiliation with friends and family members as adults. And we also have attachment behaviors that are related to sexuality. You know, we have an instinct for sex, right? We have an instinct to quote unquote get off, but we also have an instinct to bond while having sex. A lot of the things that we do during sex, if you just looked at it, it doesn't really make a lot of sense because it doesn't facilitate procreation. The uh, kissing each other, eye contact, caressing each other, talking to each other before and afterwards, cuddling with each other. All of these things are totally unrelated to sperm getting to an egg. And other species won't exhibit this. Other species that aren't as social as we are they will have sex in this extremely impersonal way. They'll, they'll, they're just there to do business, and they don't do a lot of grooming and you know and and bonding. Whereas some animals do, uh, other mammals, other birds, some fish, I think, uh, maybe insects. I'm not sure, but the point is, is that we have a lot of different attachment systems that are uh, not necessarily related directly to child and parent interactions. But I would argue that they're all, they all stem from that first attachment that we have. In other words, when attachment goes well for us as infants, we tend to have better attachment, satisfaction, and navigation in all the other realms. So if you're raised well 
and your attachment is strong as an infant, you're better able to attach to your own children when your attachment system kicks in as a parent. Or, and or you're better able to attach to friends and to coworkers, and you're better able to attach what, during sexuality and, and to your romantic partners. So um, those are all things to consider. Okay, so Bowlby suggested that the attachment system had phases. So the attachment to the caregiver had phases through observation when they would look at infants and young children, toddlers. They found that there were some somewhat universal phases to attachment. Schaefer and Emerson in 1964 also studied children and provided their own stages. And the following is an integration of these two models because I think that there are good elements to both Bowlby and the Schaefer and Emerson model. So number one is the pre-attachment phase. So this is from about zero to six weeks. This is when the infant is very young, just a little bean of a thing, a little raisin. And in this phase, babies recognize their primary caregiver, but they don't really have an attachment to that primary caregiver yet, meaning they don't really prefer the, pr- the primary caregiver to other caregivers. They are slightly more preferential toward their primary caregivers, usually their parents, but not like they will be later. So this confuses some parents because some parents will take their child home and realize that grandma or their neighbor or just any old person the infant will respond similarly to. This is actually helpful when, you, you, you know, just after giving birth, it's actually really helpful that your baby doesn't prefer you because other people can take some of the burden off of you. But it can distress some uh, new parents because they're like, wait, so it doesn't seem like my parent, it doesn't seem like my kid really cares about me, but it's totally normal. Uh, now, the children will engage in attachment behaviors like crying when they're alone, but they're not necessarily directed at the primary caregivers. During this phase, again, hopefully the caregivers have enough parenting instinct to keep the the infant close because uh, a lot of the attachment and proximity seeking is directed by the parent themselves. So as the children enter the next phase, they begin to recognize the caregiver as opposed to, you know, they they begin to identify like, oh, you're the, you're my main caregiver. Uh, sure, I like it when other people take care of me, but I think you're the main one, which leads us into stage two, which is the indiscriminate attachment phase. So this is about six weeks to three months. Infants exhibit attachment behaviors to everyone, sort of indiscriminately. So they're still they can still sort of identify. Oh, you're, I think you're the primary caregiver, but they're still too young to really discriminate between the primary caregiver and other people. They basically respond well to anyone who pays attention to them, and they get upset when people stop paying attention to them, even strangers. You might see this like when you're in public with your infant. The infant will be uh, you know, staring at you and laughing with you, but then all of a sudden there's a stranger that walks by, and the infant will see the stranger and try to get eye contact with that stranger and want to interact with that stranger, and they seem to be completely... Uh, uh, happy interacting with whomever. And uh, this is this is a fun phase for infants. If you're ever in public and you see an infant of this age, it's like you can, you can do a lot of eye contact with this phase. Again, six weeks to three months. But again, there's a slight preference for their primary care- caregiver. Okay, going on to stage three, this is what is called the emerging attachment phase. So this is an interim phase. 
and this is between three and seven months in general. The infant will start to smile more at familiar faces in, in lab experiments. They, will, they, will, they find that infants start to be more easily comforted by their primary caregiver as opposed to, to other people. And so this is when you start to see an emerging sense that the infant is like, oh, you're my primary, you're the person who takes care of me the most. I think I like you best and I feel more safe with you best, but they still are somewhat indiscriminate during this phase. So this is why, and I talk about this all the time, this is why adoption needs to happen early in a child's life if possible. This is why um, if you're going to put effort into adoption, you need to do it you know, as soon after birth as possible because during this time, even three to seven months, which is pretty early on, the child is developing an attachment to their primary caregiver. And if they're separated from that person, say it's a nurse in an orphanage, for example, then that child will incur a significant attachment injury. Okay, phase four is what we call the discriminant attachment phase. This is from seven to 10 months. So this is when a definite preference for the primary caregiver emerges. Now, all of this depends on neurotypical issues and also uh, good parenting. So if the parent did a horrible job and is abusive to the infant, then this all gets thrown out of whack. But in most cases, when the parents are doing a good enough job, the infants will develop a preference for their regular and primary caregiver. Now, sometimes this is just one parent. So for some families, for some marriages, this can be tough because the parents will feel like, well, what am I, chopped liver? Why, why, why is my child my offspring afraid of me. In in mainstream families, it's it's often the 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 father because of the way we've socialized for roles and this kind of thing, heterosexual families. And so the the father will feel rejected, will feel like, well, why am I being you know, I love this child just as much as my wife does. Why am I being ostracized here? My child is afraid of me. I mean, how horrible is that? But that's just the way that things are. I mean, the, the child uh, at this phase, some, some children, they just have a, an innate need to bond with one person, and it's hard for them to spread that around. And so they, once they decide, okay, you're my, you're my one person, I'm going to focus on you, everyone else kind of becomes a, a a dangerous stranger to them. Not always, of course, but so sometimes this, this can be distressing, but it's just a phase. Uh, so in this phase, this is when children start to develop significant separation anxiety when they're separated from that primary caregiver, and they start to develop a fear of strangers. So during this phase, children in public will not like looking at strangers all the time. Sometimes they, they're curious about strangers, but if the stranger approaches them, they might actually be quite afraid as opposed to when they're earlier, you know, say at four months age, they, they don't seem to be that afraid of strangers approaching them. Then we go to phase four, which we could call the last phase essentially of the attachment phase. This is the multiple attachment phase is what it's called. This is between 10 and 18 months. This is when children begin to develop strong attachments to people beyond their primary care caregiver, like the other parent or siblings or grandparents or nannies, etc. So between 10 and 18 months, if everything goes well, 
the infant starts to recognize, oh, there's not just my primary caregiver, but there's also these other people who take care of me as well, and I like them too. Schaefer and Emerson in 1964 found that toddlers developed attachments with people who were attuned to the toddler, not necessarily the person who spent the most time with the toddler. So this is important. The The idea is, is that just because you're spending a lot of time with your child doesn't mean that the child interprets you as their primary caregiver. It's it's who spends the most time attuned, which I'll get into what attunement means. But in a nutshell, it means being sensitive and then responsive to the child's emotional needs. So, okay, those are the four different stages. It's rough, and of course, there's variation. But again, in general, you have the pre-attachment phase, which is very early in a human's life, zero to six weeks. And the babies kind of recognize their primary caregiver, but they don't really differentiate in that way. And they pretty much, whenever they're upset, they just they just kind of scream and wail. And anyone who comes to help them, they're happy with. The second phase is indiscriminate attachment phase. This is when infants are, are start to uh, be able to recognize people, but again, they don't really um, uh, respond. You know, so as I'm reading these phases, I'm realizing that phase one, two, and three three, or at least phases one and two are basically the same. I mean, there are extreme developmental differences between a, you know, three-week-old child and a three-month-old child. So we could go into details on that. But I'm just realizing the way I'm describing it, that one and two are basically the same. And in other words, phase one and two is when the child doesn't really discriminate between different people who are taking care of that, that, that child. Number three is a transition phase, three and seven months, where you have an emerging attachment to a primary caregiver. Phase four is when definite discrimination is happening, where the child is like, you are my primary caregiver. I want you to take care of me. I want you to feed me. I am upset when you're away from me. And then phase four, or sorry, phase five is 10 to 18 months. And this is when children start to spread their attachment love around to other people. Okay, so now I think would be a good time to go into the strange situation classification or the strange situation. I talked about this in chapter one, developed by Mary Ainsworth, developed in 1969. It was a lab experiment working with children uh, generally between the ages of nine and 18 months. So these are young toddlers who can move around. They uh, come into the lab with their primary caregiver, usually their mother, and it's a 20 to 21 minute long experiment. So the procedure the procedure has a lot of um, phases. So you have uh, you have this lab room, and you have the the researchers are behind a one way mirror coding the behavior of the child. So the the first phase is the the mother and the child enter the experimental room just by themselves. And so this is, fa- this is the first step. Step two is the child is able to explore the room and the toys in the room. So the parent is instructed that um, when you enter the room, um, you, can, uh, the, you can allow your kid to r- rummage around in the room. So often what's ha- what happens is the mother brings the one-year-old child into the room. And at first, the, the child is, is a little tentative, like, where are we right now? But pretty soon the child is like, oh, okay, well, there's, there doesn't seem to be any threat around. My mom seems to be relaxed. I see toys over there. I'm going to go over there and find out what's going on. And so the child's behavior is coded on how much the child explores the room, how much the child uses the caregiver as a secure base. For example, 
looking back at the caregiver to make sure that uh, for reassurance that everything is safe. So all this is coded. And then, so that's phase one. It's just the, just the mother and child entering the room by themselves. And then the, the infant playing with toys. Phase three is a stranger enters the room. So this is a, this is a lab experiment person, researcher person. The stranger enters the room. Usually it's a, another woman. And the child's response is, co- is coded, is observed and then documented. Is the child overly afraid? Does the child treat the stranger as an attachment figure? So they're, they're looking for some normal range of behavior in the child in this situation. Phase four, stage four, is the caregiver leaves the room. And so the stranger and the infant are left alone in the room together. Again, we're looking at how does the child react? Does the child cry? Does the child not seem to care that the parent left the room? Stage five is the caregiver returns after, I think, 30 seconds or something, a minute. The caregiver returns. And then we look at how does the child react? Does the child reach out to the caregiver? Does the child uh, get violent with the caregiver? Does the child seem afraid of the caregiver? All those things are coded and are later tabulated for looking at attachment style and, and parenting quality. Phase six is the stranger and the caregiver leave the room and they leave the infant alone in the lab room. Again, we look at how does the infant react to that. Stage seven, the stranger returns to the room by themselves. The parent isn't around. The stranger returns and tries to comfort the infant or tries to play with the infant. So we look at how does the infant react to this? Are they indiscriminate about who they are comforted by? Because at this point in their development, as discussed earlier, they should be much more wary and afraid of strangers than of their primary caregiver. And then the final phase is the caregiver returns. We look at how does the infant react to this? So that's the final phase. And this takes place over 20 minutes. It's pretty quick. The idea is is that you don't want to put the infant through too much hell because it's pretty heart-wrenching to watch the child freak out whenever the parent leaves the room. So again, as I said, the researchers are behind a one-way mirror encoding the child's behavior, and they're looking at proximity and contact-seeking behaviors. They're looking at contact maintenance behaviors. They're looking at avoidance of proximity and contact behaviors, and they're also looking at resistance to contact and comforting behaviors. So the idea goes is that there are, uh, Ainsworth observed three different categorizations, but later um, Maine and Solomon found a fourth categorization that I'll get into. So this, these four categorizations are the most powerful observations in human experience and psychology, in my opinion. Mary Ainsworth, with the help of John Bowlby, uh, with the, or on the foundation of John Bowlby's theory, I think this is the most significant finding. It is, in my opinion, more important than E equals MC squared. It's more important than landing on the moon. I mean, these are very important things, but they are not as applicable to everyday life and to well-being and to the ability to actually do fantastic things like land on the moon as much as these four categories. These are extremely important things. And again, I use these all the time. 
in my clinical life and in my in my personal life. So what Ainsworth and her colleagues found was there are are three different categories, and we're going to add a fourth, which is actually kind of a rare category. But anyway, the first category we're going to talk about are the children which were called securely attached. They had other words. So throughout this talk, I'm going to talk, I'm just going to use the the four words that I like, which is secure, uh, avoidant, preoccupied, and disorganized. There are a lot of other words used to describe these four categories, which I'll get into later. But for simplicity's sake, I'm going to use these words, even though Ainsworth actually didn't use these words. They they used different words to describe this. But uh, if I use all the different terms for the exact same thing, it will become confusing. So I'm just going to use what I believe to be the best words for these categories. So the first category was securely attached children. So these are healthy kids. And these children, when they observed their behavior in the um, strange situation classification lab experiment, the children exhibited distress when they were separated from their caregiver. That's very important because they're attached to their primary caregiver. They should exhibit distress, not just experience it, but actually communicate it. They also avoid, they were avoidant of the stranger unless the caregiver was present. So if the caregiver was present, the child was not generally terrified and not generally avoidant of the stranger because the child is like, well, my my mother seems to be relaxed and cool with this, so I guess I'm cool with this. I'm going to use my mother as a secure ba- base and I'm going to explore the toys and I'm going to explore this stranger. But when the parent was not in the room, the child did not like the stranger. Also, securely attached children, they were happy to see the caregiver return. They were um, like, yay, mom's back, and they would relax and run to the mom and smile and then calm down and play with the toys again. So Ainsworth found that 70% of the infants studied exhibited this style of attachment. 70%. 70%. So most, most children exhibited secure attachment. So in summary, these secure attached children freely explored the room in their mother's presence. They showed some anxiety upon separation, not extreme, but some anxiety, some distress, uh, maybe crying, but not like complete breakdown. When the parent returned, they greeted the parent actively, usually initiating physical contact by moving toward the parent. The securely attached children were easily comforted upon reunion, and they showed obvious preference for the parent over the stranger. So that is 70% of children observed. And other studies have found similar percentages. Okay, so the second category that Ainsworth and colleagues found was what I'm going to call preoccupied, but what they called ambivalent or resistant. So I'm going to use preoccupied throughout this deep dive because I think it's easier to use these um, terms to help it keep keep it all straight. This was 15% of infants studied. So this is half of the other category, if that makes any sense. So 15% of infants studied, they showed that they were more wary when they entered the room, even when the caregiver was present. So they didn't explore the toys as readily as the secure kids. 
they were less exploratory of the room. They exhibited that the really the big difference was when they were separated from the caregiver, they exhibited extreme distress and extreme fear of the stranger. So it was much more distress, much more fear. And even when the caregiver returned, they were sometimes quite angry and hostile towards the caregiver when they returned to the room. These children were also not as comforted by the return of the caregiver, meaning they often continued to cry upon reunion. So remember with the secure kids, as soon as the parent entered back in the room, the child would stop crying, look happy, wipe the tears from their eyes, and go to their parent, and then eventually go back to the toys. These preoccupied kids were very, very upset. The, the mother would return. They would continue to cry. They might even get violent. They're very upset. You know, they, they want to communicate their anger and hostility. They're trying to use their emotions as a communication, as a weapon to say, like, I don't want you to do that anymore, and I don't trust you to not do that. So I'm going to really try to amp up my emotions here to, to make sure you understand what you did wrong here. And they uh, sometimes refuse to be comforted by pushing the parent away. The parent will try to say, hey, you know, I'm back. I'm sorry. And the kid will be like, no, I'm not going to let you uh, comfort me. Um, also, upon reunion, the, uh, many of these children would cling to the parent and would never go back to the toys. So this is uh, preoccupied attachment. Okay, so the third category is what I'm going to call avoidant throughout this talk. This is the other 15% of infants studied. So you had 70% secure, 15% preoccupied, and 15% avoidant. So these children showed little to no distress when the caregiver left the room, meaning they didn't cry, they didn't exhibit fear. It was just like, okay, mom's gone, no big deal. And, and again, these are one-year-old children you know, or 18-month-old children. So it's pretty weird, right? Mom leaves the room, the kid's like, eh, whatever. They exhibit little to no distress about the stranger. They exhibit little to no response when the caregiver returned. They might even completely ignore the parent upon reunion. They were mostly concerned with the toys, as if the parents, and, or as if, as if either adult, the caregiver or the stranger, as if they didn't exist at all. They're just like, okay, toys, yay, toys. And that's, that's pretty much all that they cared about. And they also exhibit, didn't exhibit much eye contact with the caregiver or the stranger. And they also didn't exhibit much proximity-seeking behaviors. So this is what we call avoidant attachment. So later I'm going to get into how these different categories emerge, how they develop in people. But for now, we're just going to look at the behavioral observations. Okay, so the fourth and final um, group here are the disorganized group. This category was added later by Maine and Solomon. They found that 4% of infants didn't fit neatly into the other three categories of preoccupied, avoidant, or secure. What they found was that these children seemed to be totally random in their responses to the procedure. They had very inconsistent responses, and they seemed to have elements of both preoccupied and avoidant. They definitely knew that these children were not secure, but they couldn't fit them neatly into preoccupied or avoidant. For example, when the parent returned, the child might be angry and crying like a preoccupied person, but then suddenly they would be emotionless and avoidant like an avoidant person. 
and then they might approach like a secure person, but then move away like an avoidant person. Then they might cry, then avoid, then approach. So they they were looking at these this very small group of infants, 4% of the infants, and they're like, man, they seem to be all over the place. Um, and they would also exhibit behaviors that they didn't see uh, very often at all. Like the infant might freeze in a trance-like expression, so early dissociative sorts of behaviors. The infant may move toward the parent upon reunion, but then fall down and refuse to engage with that parent when the parent reaches out to the child. The infant might cling to the parent and cry throughout regardless of what's happening. So these situations don't fit neatly into one of the other three categories, and they're just like, well... So in, in the beginning, the Ainsworth and colleagues, my guess is, is that they just looked at these people and just did their best guess to put them into either avoidant or, or preoccupied. But what Marion, but what Maine and Solomon put forth was, no, these people are really in a category of their own. That's a small category. It's only 4% of infants, but it's really, it's, it's a distinct category. And they were convincing enough so that in today's uh, attachment theory consensus, it's considered the, the fourth category. And we haven't added any other categories since. So we have secure, which is healthy. We have preoccupied, which is, in other words, you're, um, you're generally preoccupied with attachment. You're worried that at, at any time you're going to be abandoned. So you're very focused on making sure that doesn't happen. You're avoidant, which means that you just learn to avoid attachments altogether. It's better just to be independent. Or you're disorganized, which means that you don't have any consistent defense mechanism to attachment and you're pretty much in a constant state of terror. It should be noted that some studies found a much higher rate of disorganized attachment. For example, one study found a rate of as high as 15% of the population. Also, when you look at particular kinds of situations, you find higher rates like um, teenage mothers show a rate of 30% of their children are, uh, you know, can be categorized as disorganized attachment. And infants of abused mothers who have a DSM diagnosis, it can be as high as 75%. So the rates of disorganized attachment are dependent on uh, factors such as that. Okay, so that's child attachment style or attachment observations of children's behaviors. What does that have to do with adult attachment? Well, a lot of research shows that childhood attachment styles are highly correlated with the corresponding adult attachment styles. So if you have disorganized attachment at the age of one, in all likelihood, you'll have disorganized attachment presentations at the age of 35. But other research has found, or you know, research that looks into this, has found that there is variation through the lifespan, meaning that some children will change their attachment style even in the first few years of life. So when they retest people a year later, they show that some people have changed. And when you times that times 30 years and you're now 40 years old, there might have been some changes over time. There are just so many variables that affect our attachment style and our attachment defenses change in parenting or life circumstances when you're young. Like you could grow up as a secure kid and then your parents die and that affects your attachment. You could have fighting parents early in life, but then your parents divorce 
and they're more amicable in their divorce, and so that leads to more security. You could go to therapy. The whole idea of therapy is to help you with your attachment style. You could be bullied in school. You could go through a bad breakup. You could have a traumatic life event or a traumatic loss or relationship stress or ongoing relationships with family members that are good or bad or new romantic relationships. All these things can affect one's temporary and and really ongoing attachment style. Having said all that, the thing that I have found that has been quite consistent in my life is that people tend to have a consistency regarding whether where they are in a spectrum from secure to insecure. And I'll get more into that later. Okay, so let's get into really the heart of this entire deep dive, which are the four adult attachment styles. I find this to be the core of the whole talk here and the core of my life in a lot of ways. Okay, so there are the we talked about the four, you know, children observed attachment styles during the strange situation. But what about adult attachment, which is much more researched and much more nuanced? Again, um, there are the four attachment styles. You have secure, which is about 55% of adults. You have th- three types of insecure attachment, which are preoccupied, which is about 20%, avoidant, which is about 20% of people, and disorganized, which is about 5% of people. Sometimes attachment styles are coined as attachment orientation, which I kind of like that term, but it's not used very often, so we're going to stick to attachment style. So attachment style is the style of attaching, the orientation you have in your attachments, the way in which you cope with uh, threats to attachment the way you deal with bids for closeness, the way you ask for love, the way you deal with loneliness, the way you deal with closeness. This is your attachment style. So as a caveat before we go into depth on these four categories, these are not hard scientific categories, like the difference between a gas, a solid, and a liquid. These are soft psychological concepts that are based on observation, self-report, and opinion, and culture. And they're based on a model of understanding of human development and behavior. So this is a model of understanding. It's a theory of understanding things. It's not something discrete like quarks and gravity. Also, uh, before going into this, understand that there are spectra or spectrums that uh, you know you can't easily shove people into these four categories, especially some people. Some people you can't. You can be like, oh my God, you are a quintessential avoidant attachment style person. But usually it's not quite as simple. When I've worked with people, it's more of a combination. You know, you can have people who are somewhat avoidant and somewhat secure. You can even have some people who are at times disorganized, at times preoccupied, and at times secure. So I find it much more useful to look at people in terms of spectrum because it just makes sense, right, that we wouldn't there, – there's not this hard line between these different groups. The other thing is as I get into this, um, don't get caught up in the details too much because some people, when I explain this to them – they will say, well, I don't get it, you know, because I I seem a little bit preoccupied, but I also seem avoidant. What's going on here? And again, the point is, is that uh, we can't fit everyone neatly into these categories. 
the, the key is, and I hope to sprinkle this in throughout this talk, is to understand the underlying reasons for, for these presentations, and then that will help guide your understanding of the presentations and the categories. You know, in a simplistic way, if we just look at it in this very simplistic way, you just have these four different types of people. But in a more nuanced, more um, accurate way of looking at this, what we're looking at is ways in which children and adults cope with emotional and attachment difficulties. And those ways in which people cope can change over time, but they tend to be consistent, right? And you can have a mixture of different things. You know, some people, when they um, want to lose weight, they will diet. Some people will work out a lot. Some people do both. Sometimes you vacillate between working out a lot or dieting. So think of it that way, that there are, there's a problem that we all face, which is worry about being abandoned, worry about being lonely, worry about being smothered. And we have tendencies of ways of coping with that that are somewhat consistent over time and somewhat consistent with our learning as an early child. But, of course, things can morph over time. So just keep all that in mind as we get into this. Having said all that, I find that these four categories are extremely useful for understanding people. And I can categorize every single person I know on the in within some range within these uh, four categories i it's one of the only constructs in psychology where very quickly i can size someone up and put them somewhere between these four categories and therefore um, predict their behavior and predict how they react to things so let's talk about the first category here secure attachment style otherwise known as autonomous attachment style. These are the healthy people who experience good enough parents, as Winnicott would, would say, he would call it good enough parenting. And they also experienced relatively low levels of stress as children. Their, care, their caregivers were sufficiently attuned. So this is a very important concept, attunement. It has widespread use, this term, not only to parenting, but to supervision, to teaching, to therapy, to marriage. So this is an important concept, to be attuned, a wonderful thing that John Bowlby gave us here. There are two parts to being attuned as a parent. One is to be sensitive, and two is to be responsive. We actually use this, uh, these two things in my program. When we were developing our... Uh, uh, our objectives for uh, our our program. I I came up with the we we should I go down this rabbit hole? Yeah, why not? So I wanted our program, as most mental health programs, training programs, want to have. We wanted to be culturally relevant, competent, aware, all these kinds of words. And one of the things that. Um, we ran into was what word do we use? Because when you use cult culturally competent in our field, that is a pretty close word to what people want to achieve. But sometimes competent implies that once you achieve the competency, you're done. And there's no way to be done with cultural awareness and responsiveness. So we thought, well, and, and then in our field, people didn't really like that term cultural competence for that reason. 
So there's all these other words getting floated, floating around. It's like, well, what are we shooting for with our students? What are we trying to train them to be? How do we encapsulate that into a phrase? And so eventually we landed on the phrase culturally responsive in my program. So we're trying to uh, train people to be culturally responsive. But that still doesn't really get, get to it. What, we, what I really wanted to say but just didn't really have the room because I like things to be concise is culturally aware or sensitive and responsive. So this is similar to being attuned is that you need to be sensitive and aware of your children. You need to be uh, aware. You need to be like paying attention. You need to be sensitive to what is happening. You need to be open. So, and then responsive. So, you know, you can't just be aware. You actually have to respond well as well. So the first part of this is being sensitive. The caregiver notices the experience of the child. The caregiver pays attention to the child. They're open to the child's experience. They're not constantly interpreting or biased about the child's experience. They're, they're open to um, what the child's real experience is. They're curious about the child's experience, almost obsessively, especially when the child is an infant. You'll see this in good parents. They will be obsessively interested in what their infant uh, is going through and what their experience is. And you'll see this, actually, it's, a, it's an instinct that we all have, that um, like in my extended family, whenever there's an infant at Thanksgiving or Christmas, we're all obsessed with the infant. You know, the infant enters the room, wakes up from a nap, you plop the infant down in, on the floor and, you know, there's some toys and instantly all conversation stops and you just focus on that infant. What is the infant doing? You know, what noises does, does the infant make? What when does the infant smile or laugh or what eye contact is happening? You know, it is a human instinct for, for this to happen. And so as long as there's nothing getting in the way of that process, parents will naturally be very sensitive to their children's experience because it's, it's an instinct in the same way that children have an instinct to attach their parents. Parents have an instinct to pay attention and be sensitive to their children. Now, if the parents had gone through prior mistreatment, then that can get in the way of that instinct for sure, which I'll get into later. But anyway, so, so that's the first part of being attuned is, is to be sensitive and aware and, um, of what the infant is going through, um, both passively and actively. So passively aware is you're cleaning the dishes and you just have one ear or one eye on your infant, even though you're not actively paying attention. And, and then you just sort of, your spidey sense goes off when you sense something is wrong. And then there's active awareness where you actively pay attention. You actively look at the child. You actively try to find out what's happening. So, and a very critical part of this uh, sensitive element of attunement is that when the infant is upset, the caregiver notices very quickly. That's very important. It's a very important uh, part of attunement is parents, caregivers, really. And so, by the way, when I say caregivers, uh, I'm extending this to grandparents, to nurses, to foster parents, um, it, it really, to, to nannies. So, under, But often it is the parent, um, but it can be anybody, adoptive parents. So the second part of attunement is to be responsive, 
So the caregiver not only has to notice things, but they need to respond and respond well. For example, the child falls down and starts to cry. The caregiver notices this, is sensitive and is aware, and responds to this by quickly moving toward the child, holding the child, and saying comforting things. Like, you'll, you'll be okay, this kind of stuff. Another example, the child is getting bored and agitated, and the caregiver again notices this and interprets it accurately. That's another important thing is being open. The sensitivity isn't just sensitive. You actually have to be accurate in your interpretations of your children or accurate enough, which requires being open to their experience and not being biased or distorted. So the child is exhibiting boredom and agitation. The caregiver notices this and interprets it accurately. The caregiver goes to the child and entertains them or gives them ideas about how to entertain themselves or something like that. The caregiver is good at reflecting the the child's experience, mirroring their emotions. For example, when the child is happy and joyful and laughing, the caregiver is good at noticing this at interpreting it well, and expressing that emotion in their own face. You'll notice that really good parents and really good caregivers will have highly expressive faces with their infants. The infant will be going, and the parent will exaggerate on their own face what their emotion that they're feeling. You'll see that in, in caregivers. The caregiver is relatively undefended, meaning that they don't have a lot of prior baggage that gets in the way of them being open and responsive and attuned to their children. Also, the caregiver is good at communicating with their children, whatever is happening in the moment. So all of this attunement, being sensitive and aware and responsive, results in the child developing secure attachment or having a secure base, as John Bowlby put it. A secure base, like a headquarters base that you would have is a place where the child can return when they need security and can move away from to explore the world. Bowlby really saw this infant behavior as analogous to a lot of behaviors later in life that was similar to therapy, for example. We need the secure base of our therapist that we can return to when we need safety and comfort And then that gives us the strength to venture off into the world in a confident manner. There are many, many effects that research has found that are uh, caused by secure attachment, many things that are associated with secure attachment. And I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of them, and some of these are related to each other and some of them aren't. So better relationships. People with secure attachment tend to have better relationships. They have lower psychopathology, lower rates of depression, anxiety. I'll get more into details on that later. They have higher self-esteem. They uh, will probably need therapy less than other people, they, depending on the situation. They, the intensity of our countertransference with these people will be less. They will manage rejection better. They will react to conspiracy theories differently. So I'm going to get more into details on those specifics. Uh, They're less likely to be addicted, for example. Their uh, emotional regulation is better. Their emotional intelligence is better. This is a very important thing to have in life. They're more interpersonally competent. They're just better with socializing. 
they have better social cognition, more, more likely to understand things accurately, less, less likely to distort things. Be, uh, having secure attachment, it helps children to learn life skills from their caregivers by keeping them close so they can observe and open to their parents, how to talk to people, how to even drink from a cup or tie your shoes, or how to get older brother to pay attention to you. Having secure attachment helps uh, kids to learn faster, helps children to develop their ability to mentalize and have reflective function, which I'll get into more later. Secure attachment helps people to develop the ability for emotional attunement to other people. So when you are attuned to children, they, are, they have a greater ability to be attuned to others as they mature. There's just better psychosocial functioning in life, like doing better with school and work and relationships. They report better quality of their romantic relationships. They generally trust that others will care for them. This is key. They assume that they themselves are lovable and that others are capable of loving them. That's a very important thing. They can cope with negative feelings like hurt and rejection and shame and anger. Sure, it feels bad to be hurt. Sure, it feels bad to be rejected. But they recover much quicker than other people do. And they tend to have effective ways of coping, like seeking support. They're, they, they are more engaged with other people. They're more extroverted. They're warmer and more compassionate. They're open to experience in life. They exhibit little to no hostility towards others. Just think about that. Secure attachment results in less violence, less hostility, less aggression towards other people. They're more self-disclosing because they are comfortable with relationships and they trust others with their personal information. They're more positive about their relationship experiences in the past. They'll they tend to have uh, re- they tend to have narratives that are more positive about past relationships. They'll talk about a an ex uh, boyfriend or ex girlfriend in a way that is is much more positive. They have larger social support systems. They're more satisfied with the support from other people. They'll report, "Yeah, I have I have a good support system, and you know they're they're really great to me." They're better parents. I mean, that's a big one right there. Their relationships are mutually beneficial and happier. So research has found that when you look at secure people, uh, they're happy with their relationships themselves, and people are happy with their relationships with them. They are more committed to their spouses, and this is true commitment. This is not a need or a clinginess. This is a true commitment of this is what they want. So they're, just, they're, just, they're generally more committed and more loyal to their spouses. They're more able to remember positive aspects of their past relationships. So when you ask them, they'll be like, yeah, that was a good time. They're more likely to respond positively to couple therapy. So studies have found, one in 2011, has found that secure attached people respond more quickly when they engage in couple therapy. They're more likely to provide consistent memories and judgments of childhood relationships. So they will recognize that their parents were mostly good, but, you know, had some bad qualities. And they'll describe this without much tension about it. They also don't idealize their parents or villainize. They tend to have a good balance of their understanding of their parents. I mean, part of that is because their parents were that way, but also it has to do with the way that they organize their life and narrativize their life. They have a greater sense of self-worth. They believe that their loved ones will be there for them when they need them. 
and they enjoy being close to people. So these are just some of the things that research has found that is associated with secure attachment. It just sounds wonderful, right? <laughs> All your relationships are generally good. You have, you have generally good memories. You generally trust other people. You like yourself. You're open to the world. You're, uh, you, you are suffering from less psychopathology. Um, you're healthier. You have, your physical health is actually better. There's just so many wonderful things that happen when we have secure attachment. Okay, so now let's go into what is termed insecure attachment styles. So we have secure attachment, and then we have, on the other side of the spectrum, we have insecure attachment. And there are three types of insecure attachment. And this basically happens when a child is not provided enough attunement. They aren't provided enough good parenting, or, and or they've been mistreated significantly, abused. And when a child is, is faced with this mistreatment, this not enough good parenting, not enough attunement, they have three choices because they're often in distress and they can't really depend on their parents to consistently soothe them. So they have to figure out some way of coping with that. And so there are three choices available to young children. Number one is, well, it's them. They're the problem, not me. I'm not the problem. They're the problem. I'm good. The others are bad. That's why I'm not getting my needs met. My parents are stupid or unreliable or whatever. And so this is the coping style that develops into avoidant attachment. I'm good. They're bad. The other choice that a child has is it's me and not them. My parents are good and I am bad. The reason why I'm not getting good enough parenting is because I'm not good enough. And this is what is associated with preoccupied attachment style. I'm a bad person. That's why I'm not getting the love that I deserve. So I need to be better and more vigilant about getting love from other people. And the third type of coping style of insecure attachment is, you know what? It's both. I'm bad and my parents are bad. This is what we call disorganized attachment. And this is always a bad scenario. Having said that, you, you, so it might appear, and I'll get into more of this later, it might appear that disorganized is like the worst of these three. But a brief summary of what I'll get into later is disorganized is always an extreme bad scenario. But you could have extreme avoidant attachment and extreme preoccupied attachment that is quote-unquote just as bad as disorganized. Having said that, you can also have low-grade avoidant and low-grade preoccupied that isn't as bad as the higher levels of avoidant, preoccupied, and all of the disorganized people. I hope that makes sense. Another way of looking at this is that children early in life, when they're not getting enough attuned parenting, they have three choices. They can avoid other people and depend on themselves. They can say, you know what? I've realized that other people are not good sources of love and attention. Uh, they're not good sources of safety. They're not good sources of, of um, goodness. And so I'm just going to avoid them altogether because it's just easier that way. That's what we call avoidant attachment. 
Another choice they have is to be hyper-vigilant about others and depend on other people, to just throw yourself at the mercy of other people and to be extremely vigilant about paying attention so you can sort of play the game. And this is what we call preoccupied people. Essentially what these people experienced, which I'll get into later, is inconsistent parenting. And so they realize that if they play the game right, they can actually get more love and attention. And so this is this causes this coping style of like, well, I need to pay very close attention to what's going on with my parents because if I don't pay attention, I won't get any love and attention. And the third style is to be both, is to be hypervigilant about what's going on and also avoidant of other people and also hate the self. And this is what we call disorganized attachment. So these three options help the child adapt to what is happening in their early life. Essentially, they're, they're attempting to adapt to bad parenting or bad caregiving. But these adaptive styles become fixed part of the personality. And even if they're treated better in the future, they will still, in general, react with the same defensive structure. Because once we develop a, a defensive structure early in life, it tends to remain stable. It can be changed, which I'll get into in the therapy chapter, but it tends to be pretty consistent. And thus, ironically, these attachment styles interfere with them developing secure attachments in the future. They will push people away. They will make it seem like they don't have any emotions at all, which doesn't alert other people to their needs. Or they can be very demanding or hostile or very hypervigilant, which can be very annoying to people. Or they will be inconsistent with their love and attention. And so Although this coping mechanism of insecure attachment style was very adaptive when they were zero to five years old, when they're 45 years old, it actually will push people away and make it very difficult to establish satisfying, secure relationships with other people. And since they were never given enough consistent love and attention, they operate from this constant feeling of deficit. So that's an important thing to highlight here is the insecure attachment styles, they constantly feel alone or hurt or abandoned. It's, it's a chronic feeling, regardless of what sort of situation they're in, because they were made to feel that way early. And it's sort of, you could think of it in the, in the brain sense that a certain pathway in the brain became habitual for the brain to participate in. And so even though everything's going fine and their, might, their life might actually – and their relationships might actually be going very, very well, they will still have this chronic monkey on their back of this feeling of abandonment or being alone or being in danger or something. And this can result in other kinds of things. Like they'll, they'll just feel like the world owes them more than they're willing to give. And they might have a constant vigilance that interferes with their ability to notice other people's needs. So there's just a lot of really negative effects from this. And some of those effects are the following. So this, this is, these are effects of insecure attachment in general, regardless of the style of insecure attachment. So insecure attachment is associated with fear of getting too close to people, you know, for fear of being vulnerable and fear of being rejection. Sometimes this is called a fear of commitment or something, but no one fears commitment. What they really fear is rejection, and it'll come across like they're fearing commitment. Um, uh, they will have more emotional reactivity. They'll be more undifferentiated, as we say in family therapy. Insecure, attached people are prone to jealousy. 
they also are they, they tend to be distrustful of their partners, their intimate partners. They tend to have lower levels of intimacy, lower levels of, of you know, bonding with people. They have a higher rate of overall relational distress, meaning that they'll report that their relationships cause them uh, more pain, more distress, more, more anger, more hurt than other people, even if their relationship is, is going okay. They're less likely to benefit from couples therapy. Again, in an ironic turn, the people who need couples therapy the most will benefit from it the least because of their condition. And like I always tell my supervisees uh, to be ready for this because people come to therapy because they have problems, not because they're super healthy. Uh, insecure attachment, it, people are more likely to remember, to remember bad moments with their current partner. So if you ask them about their life with their current spouse, they're much more likely to talk about bad moments and remember bad moments in vivid detail, as opposed to secure attached people who tend to forget bad moments pretty quickly. Insecure attached people have greater pathology following stressful life events. So when there's a stress, they're much more likely to become anxious, depressed, reactive, have a PTSD reaction of some kind. And so insecure attachment affects that. And there are many, many other effects that I'll get into more specifically as I talk about, talk about the individual attachment styles. Now, some research recently, 2014, Conrath et al., for example, has found that attachment insecurity has been increasing in recent years. So it seems that it's possible that our society is creating more and more insecure attached individuals. Now, this is hard to measure because, like I said earlier, this is not a hard scientific construct, and trying to measure this is difficult. But honestly, I could, I could see it. People are working more now. Both parents are working outside the house often now. There's more screen time for both parents and children, TVs, computers, phones, etc., and with greater wealth, with which especially in the Seattle area, you see people getting bigger houses so that everyone gets their own room, everyone gets their own TV, uh, there's more nannies involved. And I think that all this contributes to a general trend of greater attachment insecurity. If we go back 100 years, 200 years, 300 years ago, the most people were farmers, and there were no TVs, there were no radios. There was nothing to do that would really distract us from those around us. And you also didn't have cars, and you couldn't go any place, so you're just home all the time. And so your parents were just around. Uh, you know, at worst, your dad or mom would be in the fields working, you know, on a, on a share crop or something. But they'd probably be, be within earshot. At the very least, one of the parents would probably be very close to where you're at at all times. All the time, your loving parent is right there, and your older siblings are right there. And so when you're distressed, they will notice. Whereas today, parents are separated from their kids regularly. Now, it's, it's probably okay once, they're, once they reach a certain age, if they're six, seven, eight years old, but what we need to do is we need to keep the primary attachment figure very close in proximity to children 
very early in life. And when I get into the parenting chapter, I'll, I'll go over that. So I think we actually have some trends in our cultures that are, are resulting in more uh, insecure attachment. Um, so as a caveat before I go into the three different insecure attachment styles, as I said earlier, not everyone fits neatly into these categories. Again, I find it much more useful to conceptualize people on a spectrum between secure and insecure. And then of the insecure people, there are variations and spectrums that people will fall on. For example, someone could be 70% preoccupied, uh, 10% disorganized, and 20% secure. Or they could be 50% secure and 50% avoidant, depending on the stress of the situation. I find it much more useful to look at it that way. Research often just categorizes people into these four groups, right? But I, d I find that to be not as accurate because, in my opinion, just before moving forward, is I think that I I've never met a single person who was 100% secure attachment. Everyone I know, everyone I've worked with, every even the wisest, most well-adjusted person I know in my personal life, uh, getting to know them, I realize that when push comes to shove, they will exhibit some insecure attachment behaviors. Now, what uh, theorists would say was, well, you know, that's everybody. And so, sure, when, you're a, when you have secure attachment and you have a threat, you're going to have some reactivity to it. But to me, the easier way of conceptualizing that is no one is 100% secure. And so, therefore, you would say, well, that, that person is 80% secure and 20% preoccupied. Uh, I find that that is accurate, useful, and um, resonates with people as well. I, I talk with clients, I talk with students, I talk with supervisees about attachment style. And whenever I present it in that way, they're much more um, apt to identify with what's happening. Because very few people are like, oh my God, I am 100% preoccupied. Very few people are like that. Some people are, for sure. And some people... I would conceptualize that way. But more often than not, people are some combination of things. Okay, so let's look at preoccupied attachment first as our first insecure attachment style, otherwise known as anxious attachment, ambivalent attachment, anxious ambivalent attachment, resistant attachment, dependent personality, borderline personality, passive aggressive personality, histrionic personality. I personally like preoccupied among all the different terms. The, the other common term that people use is anxious. You'll, some, you'll hear a lot of people use the word anxious. But I don't like this word because it implies that the other insecure attachment styles, namely avoidant people, are not anxious. But it's, it's not that preoccupied people are anxious and avoidant people are not anxious. It's just that preoccupied people exhibit their anxiety to other people. Avoidant people are extremely anxious about attachments. They just have learned to avoid it, deny it, and not show it. So I don't like to use the term anxious. So preoccupied fits it better, meaning that they are actively thinking about attachments in a pathological way. They're hypervigilant about being rejected and abandoned, whereas avoidant people avoid the um, need for um, attachments, even though they need it. So I really like the word preoccupied. And I sort of wish our industry would figure out some um, 
congruence around the different words because I find it to be confusing. Like when I give a lecture, it doesn't correspond with the literature that I assign for reading in the class. And sometimes people are like, so when you say preoccupied, are you talking about anxious? And I'm like, oh, that's right. The literature I gave you said anxious. So I don't know. It's just a minor annoyance. But anyway, so what sort of parenting do children go through that compels the preoccupied attachment style? The main word I want you to remember is inconsistent. The, the parents of preoccupied children are inconsistent with their parenting. They will alternate between giving some attention and then no attention, between some affection and then no affection, between some attunement and then no attunement. But even when they are attuned, so to speak, they tend to be limited in their ability to attune. But there's some signal there that the child is picking up on. This is sometimes the result of divorce, like a family during the stress of the divorce will become temporarily unavailable or periodically unavailable emotionally because of the stress of the divorce. And then after the divorce happens and one of the parents moves out of the house and um, the, the children will experience sporadic attunement because one of the parents isn't even around. Drug abuse can also cause this. When people abuse substances, they tend to vacillate between different phases of their coping and their use and will phase in and out of attunement with their children. Traveling for work can also affect this. John Bowlby went through this with his dad. You are home and you're giving a lot of love and attention and then all of a sudden, boom, you're just gone. Also mood swings. If you have a bipolar parent or a borderline parent or a depressed parent who vacillates between different moods, they will vacillate between giving attention and not giving attention. And there's many other types of situations that can result in inconsistent parenting. Um, this is almost always associated with parents who have some form of insecure attachment. Sometimes people say that preoccupied parents tend to raise preoccupied kids, but in my experience, that's too, it's too general to say. Um, there's, not a, there's not a clear correlation in the research. I'll get more into that later but in the parenting chapter, but, but just know that if you have a parent with an insecure attachment style, one of the three insecure attachment styles, they are going to, in all likelihood, raise a child with one of the insecure attachment styles themselves. So as infants, getting back to the Ainsworth strange situation experiment, again, as infants, they found that the infants were excessively anxious, even when the parent was in the room. They were more likely to be angry and punishing of the parent when the parent returned to the room. They were more clingy to the parent before and after the separation. And they were more difficult to comfort upon the reunion. So this is the early behavior that, that um, lead, you know, points to an emotional experience for the child. Because the child would go through you know, um, uh, inconsistent parenting, the child has learned that in order to get love and attention, they have to be very watchful and very communicative. So they have to pay very close attention, and when they see threats to their security, they have to be very uh, noticeable in their communication with other people. So their attachment behaviors are sort of turned up to 11. 
They're that they notice things much more quickly. They're much more sensitive to things. They interpret things much more severely. You know, mom leaves the room, and instead of being like, "Well, I don't like the fact that mom left the room, but I'm pretty sure she's going to be back," that's a secure person. A preoccupied person, mom left the room. Oh my God, does this mean she's never coming back? Okay, she's back. Boy, do I have to tell her what she did wrong. I have to make sure that she never does that again. So that's that hypervigilance and high responsiveness, high emotional reactivity indicative of preoccupied attachment and the later personality disorders that develop because of this, i.e. borderline histrionic spectrum. They also can develop dependent personality and behavior. So common personality disorders, borderline histrionic dependent is, is what I see. And again, as I've talked about in other deep dives, when I'm talking about dependent borderline histrionic, I'm not talking about necessarily what is described in the DSM. What I'm talking about is a spectrum. To me, borderline and preoccupied are almost the exact same word to me because I have a much broader, more psychoanalytic uh, definition of what borderline personality is. And I tend to see um, histrionic and borderline to be very similar. Um, narcissism is in there as well. And dependent is uh, but a different uh, scenario. Um, so just to get kind of uh, micro on this a little bit, you could say that there are two types of preoccupied attachment. One is in, one is in which you are hypervigilant about rejection and you are very noticing of that. This is this is indicative of borderline narcissistic and um, and histrionic, particularly borderline histrionic, where you're very communicative. You're very you're very noticeable. You will get very angry at people when they when you perceive that they're rejecting you. The other strategy within preoccupation is to become dependent, which is to be very nice, but to be very internal internal angry. This is passive aggressive dependent type. So you're not expressing your anger in very noticeable ways, but you're you're secretly very upset about being rejected and not having attachment security. So there, one's more an internal experience, one's more an external experience. I'll get more into that later, but um, I think that's important to make those connections with the personality disorders. Some common experiences for preoccupied people are the following. They don't think of themselves as worthy or lovable in general. So again, remember that this was the coping strategy of, is it me or is it them? And preoccupied people decided, it's me, not them. Other people are good. I'm bad. And so they generally don't have high self-esteem, and they don't think of themselves as worthy or lovable. That was what they decided early in life as an interpretation of the inconsistent parenting that they received. They never feel good enough. They will often complain that um, a, a phrase in therapy that will often really get to people and, and really just you know, make them cry and, and realize that they're being seen is when I'll tell them, I'll just ask like, so when do you feel good enough in life? When do you feel good enough? For, when do you feel worthy to other people? And they'll say, you know, they'll start crying and they'll just be like, I've never felt good enough. I've always felt insufficient or incompetent or not lovable or something. So it's that sense, that inner working model of the self that uh, states that they're bad and other people are good. In extreme cases, they'll truly hate themselves, which can manifest as chronic suicidality and even suicide behavior. 
common ex- other common experience for preoccupied people, they believe that everyone else is untrustworthy and disloyal. So even though they think other people are good, through their own experience, they tend to say like, well, I don't think I can trust other people. And I'm very loyal, but other people are not. And they basically assume that everyone that loves them or appears to love them will eventually leave them. And they desperately don't want that to happen. They believe that no one really cares about relationships like they do. They'll even say stuff like that. They'll say like, no one is as loyal as I am, or no one loves their partners as much as I am, or none of my past partners have loved me as much as I have loved them. They Again, not for all people. These are um, just generalizations. Not everyone has all these different qualities, but um, these are common issues. So I guess if I rattle off this whole list and you have, say, seven out of 10, then you know, you're probably looking at a preoccupied situation. Preoccupied people have this pervasive feeling of worry and nervousness and unease about close relationships. Almost every day, they have thoughts about their partner leaving them or cheating on them or just that something bad will happen. In fact, a lot of preoccupied people report that even when things are going well, and maybe even particularly when things are going well, they will assume that something bad is going to happen right around the corner. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Even though there's no evidence that anything bad is going to happen, they'll just be like, my life is going well. Surely something bad is going to happen around the corner. And that's because when they were young, because of this inconsistent parenting style, they realized that that was actually pretty predictive of the future. Wow, my mom is really paying attention to me right now. But I've learned hundreds of times prior to this that that only means that eventually she's going to pull the plug on this love and attention thing, and I'm going to be left out on the lurch. So you rinse and repeat that enough times, and they grow up as adults and feel like, well, whenever things are going well, eventually, very soon, things are going to go very badly. And so you'll see people have that sense. They can become so focused on the threat of abandonment that they don't really have any room for love and affection for other people, either to give or to receive. So when you're terrified of something, when you're terrified of anything, you don't have a lot of capacity for love and attention to either receive it from other people or give it. And so uh, it can, even if they're in good relationships, even in good therapeutic relationships, it can be hard for them to really internalize that because they're in a, such a chronic state of panic and, and low self-worth. Preoccupied people will often complain about distance or the lack of commitment in their partners. They will often pursue their romantic partners. Not all the time, but they often push their partners to move in quickly um, or to move their relationship forward. They'll be the one to say, hey, let's move in together, or hey, let's get married, or hey, let's have kids. Or they, 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 In relation to other people, they seem to race ahead in, in relationships because they have this fantasy that that future milestone will give them the, the security that they need. And sometimes it does work. I mean, getting married does you know, solidify a relationship, right, and can make one feel more secure. But it often doesn't, depending on the severity of the issue. I mean, it surely doesn't solve all their problems, that's for sure. As adults, they can come across as needy or clingy. I don't like these words, but they are often identified in this way colloquially. And, or sometimes they're referred to as psycho. I remember when I was a kid, that's what 
we would call people like this, that person's psycho. In dating relationships, they tend to freak people out because of their quote-unquote clinginess. They might talk about love too soon. They might talk about marriage too soon. They might want to hang out every every single day, even though you just met. And this applies not just to romantic relationships, but it often does to friendships as well. Now, um, they do this not because they want to be annoying, but because they're so desperate for attachment security that when they find someone that is um, that seems like a secure base, they will glom onto that. It's the analogy that I've given before on this podcast is you are starving. You don't, you know, there's a recent story about this guy who was trapped in his car for five days and he ate Taco Bell condiments to survive. And uh, Reddit comments, people were saying the um, Taco Bell condiments actually probably set him back a little bit because there was no sustenance. But anyway, the point is, is that imagine you haven't had anything to eat except for Taco Bell hot sauce for five days. Imagine how good a ham sandwich would taste or a cheese sandwich would taste or whatever you love to eat, a hamburger or lasagna or spaghetti or pizza. Uh, Imagine how good that would taste if you were given it after five days. Also, imagine you're rescued after five days of no food and you're starving and someone says to you that, uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna rescue you and we're gonna take you to, to this lodge. It's about an hour away, and there will be food and water there. And but you see that one of your rescuers has a granola bar. Don't you think you're gonna be like, um, can I just have that granola bar now? That granola bar looks pretty good. I mean, geez, it looks like a pretty tasty treat there. Can I have it? 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 Makes total sense, right? totally rational. We can all relate to that, I hope. I mean, not directly. I hope that we haven't all starved for five days, but we can relate to that, right? It's totally normal. Well, when you go your entire life without any attachment security and your orientation is to look outwards to you know, solve that problem, when attachment security is within your reach, you're going to grab it. And you're going to be like, can we move in together? Can we get married? Can we stay? Can we hang out all the time? Can, can, can you love me all the time? Can you make me feel this way all the time? Can I come to therapy every day? Can we email each other every day? It's a totally normal uh, expression of desperation. And when people look at these people, they're like, oh my God, that person's so clingy. Like the, the clingy girlfriend meme that's on the internet, I find to be really horrible. Those people who exhibit that are deeply suffering and they're not, we shouldn't be making fun of them. It's, it's really an awful th- thing to be making fun of. Now, because of our culture, we tend to look at that as sort of a choice, like, oh, my God, she's so clingy, that's so annoying. But it's just as pathological or just as ingrained in people's personalities as, say, depression or obsessive-compulsive disorder or PTSD or schizophrenia, for that matter. For that matter, People don't have a choice about schizophrenia. People don't have a choice about OCD. People don't have a choice about PTSD. And people don't have a fucking choice about preoccupied attachment style. So we should really stop making fun of those people. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to be involved with these people. It doesn't mean you have to put up with their behavior. But it does mean we have to have compassion and understanding that they don't have control over it. They can't just turn that off. Um, Another quality that you'll often hear about preoccupied people is that, uh, and this isn't for all people with preoccupied attachment, but it's it's for the borderline style 
or the histrionic style of preoccupied attachment, which is that people in a relationship with that person will often feel like they're walking on eggshells because the preoccupied person with this style of preoccupation will react with hostility. So remember going back to the Ainsworth strain situation experiment or situation uh, procedure, (laughs) the child sometimes when the mother would return to the room would punish the mother for having left with hostility, violence, this kind of thing. Well, that can translate into later in life when a adult uh, retains that, that defensive structure into adulthood and they feel as though you have metaphorically left the room and then you return, they will be hostile with you. They might even be violent with you, but on you know lower levels of this behavior, they will at the very least be angry at you. They'll call you names. They'll, they'll be hostile. They'll have an aggression in their vibe towards you. And that can be very upsetting to people. And if you do this enough times, people learn that this, you're, you know, it'd be like, man, my partner gets angry sometimes. My partner gets upset sometimes. And I better watch what I do because uh, sometimes my partner becomes very upset in times when I didn't predict they were going to be very upset. Um, and again, not all preoccupied people do this. For example, dependent people and, and passive aggressive people tend not to do this very much, although they're capable of it. They, they don't tend to do it as much as the borderline histrionic people do. Okay, just to rattle off a bunch of qualities of people who have preoccupied attachment, I'm going to rattle off a bunch. And remember that um, there's probably no one that has no preoccupied person who has all these signs. But just to give you a general sense of what sort of personality type we're talking about, what sort of defensive structure we're talking about. They often seem needy, as I was saying saying earlier. Sometimes they seem very dependent on their partners and other people. They can be demanding, not always, but they can they can certainly be demanding. They're often stubborn. Preoccupied people are almost always thought of as being stubborn. They can blow up over seemingly random things. Again, making you walk on eggshells. Not every person with preoccupied, but many. They're easily hurt. This is actually a hallmark of preoccupied attachment. They're easily hurt and then easily angry. Now, sometimes that anger, as I said earlier, is in the borderline histrionic fashion. And by the way, when I say histrionic, I'm positive in 20, 50 years, we are going to be using a different term because histrionic is a misogynistic, sexist term uh, when you look at the history of it. So, I, for future listeners, I apologize for using that term. That's the term we're using today, and I realize that it has sexist implications going back thousands of years. Anyway, so uh, they're easily hurt, and for the borderline histrionic people, they will make their anger known uh, overtly, but the dependent passive-aggressive type will uh, have their anger expressed in extremely covert ways sometimes in ways that no one ever detects. I've worked with passive-aggressive people, dependent people, who everyone would describe as the nicest person on the planet, as never having any anger at all. And upon investigation with them clinically, I discovered that deep down they have extreme anger towards other people, but it is expressed in the most uh, quiet, passive-aggressive way. Um, because so with these types of people, 
their inconsistent parenting resulted in them believing that in order to get some love and attention, they had to suppress their anger. They realized that if they expressed their anger, they would be rejected even more. So they became very black and white about anger. They they didn't say to themselves, well, sometimes ang- anger is okay and sometimes it's not. No, what they decided was all anger is bad. All anger is a threat to my attachment security. And so they just suppress, 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 and it becomes a very automatic thing to them. Sometimes they're not even aware of their their anger. Whereas borderline histrionic people, it was not that way for them, and they're much more readily overtly angry with other people because of their preoccupations. Preoccupied people can be obsessed with relationships. This is a frequent sign. They can be called addicted to love or you know love addicted. Uh, in modern times, they will text often and expect quick answers. This is a pretty big sign. If, if you've ever been yelled at by your partner for not responding quick enough to your texts, they're either preoccupied or you're avoidant or both in all likelihood. They can be highly judgmental of other people. Again, this is that anger being expressed. They can be impatient with other people. They can be sexually promiscuous to gain love and attention, more willing to engage in risky sex. Research has found that all, all this is supported by research, by the way. This isn't just my observation. They are frequently in crisis, quote unquote. Every time they sit down in your office, they will talk about some crisis that happened, and it'll be quite convincing, um, partially because they will histrionically drum up crises to highlight in their life because they feel like they need to do that in order to get love and attention from you. But also, they tend to just build more chaos in their life due to their personality. With some preoccupied people, they will have lots of histrionic hand gestures when they talk or lots of exaggerated facial expressions when they talk or express themselves. Um, Histrionic people uh, who are preoccupied tend to be much more noticeable in their emotions. They have a harder time hiding their emotional state because, again, when they were young, they realized that in order to get love and attention, they needed to make sure that they were constantly signaling to other people what they were feeling. They didn't trust that other people would pay attention otherwise. Preoccupied people, all of them have difficulty soothing themselves. That's a universal thing to preoccupied people. When they're upset, when they're hurt, when they feel abandoned, they have a really hard time soothing themselves in that situation. They can become quite jealous, either secretly or or overtly jealous, meaning that they worry intensely about their spouses talking to other people, Um, And they worry about it quite a lot because, again, they have this running assumption that uh, they're going to be abandoned. And cheating is one of the ways in which they could conceivably be abandoned, right? They don't trust their partners as much as secure people. Their communication is worse. They have poor conflict resolution skills, according to research, because they're somewhat paranoid about the intentions of other people. They are more likely to obsess about ex-partners, so ex-girlfriends, ex-boyfriends, ex-wives, ex-husbands. They're more likely to obsess about that even if they're in a good current relationship. They're more likely to engage in brief, unstable relationships. Um, They might have a pattern of bad relationships, quote-unquote. Each relationship that they're in can be super intense. You know, they're just totally in love. And then when things go bad, they totally hate that person. They can be high drama. They show that they are really interested in other people. 
and they sometimes make other people feel really heard and seen. So this is something that is a hallmark of borderline, but also preoccupation in general, which is, again, when you are starving for five days and someone has a crappy uh, granola bar in their pocket, you are going to be extremely appreciative of that granola bar as opposed to if you're at a buffet and you have all this wonderful food and you've been satiated and someone shows you the same granola bar, you're going to be like, ugh, get that out of my face. So when you're starving and something comes your way for love and attention, you are going to be very happy when that arrives and you're going to be very focused on that person and be like, oh my God, you're the best. And this can happen in therapy as well. But it also happens in romantic relationships. And this can be quite intoxicating. If you've ever been involved romantically with a preoccupied person, with a borderline spectrum person, they can really make you feel loved and needed. It's a very intoxicating feeling to feel needed, to feel appreciated, to feel important in someone else's life. And it can become um, very attractive. So some preoccupied people can push people away, uh, but some can be actually very attractive at first. Preoccupied people are prone to excessive reassurance seeking and clinging behavior. Research shows this. They frequently need reassurance that their partner loves them. And after being reassured, they're quick to forget that reassurance. And they need reassurance again, seemingly very quickly. And then they have a hard time retaining that in that reassurance. So no matter how much you reassure them within a couple days or a short period of time, all of that re- reassurance has completely gone out the window and, and they need a whole new batch of reassurance. Whereas secure people tend to retain reassurance for longer periods of time. Having said that, secure people absolutely need reassurance, but they just need it less often and they're, they're more trusting of it and they retain it better. Now, during conflict, preoccupied people are more sensitive to the stress of the conflict and they tend to escalate conflict much more readily. So people with preoccupied attachment, their conflicts with their spouses, with their partners tend to be quite ugly, tend to be quite intense. For example, let's say you have a couple and they're driving in a car and they're looking for a parking spot and the um, the secure wife is driving the car and the preoccupied husband is in the passenger seat and the preoccupied husband spots a good parking spot, points it out, says, hey, I see, I see a, I see a parking spot up there. And the wife is kind of distracted and she sees a, a spot that she likes to park in. And so she parks in that spot instead and doesn't park in the spot that the preoccupied husband pointed out. And the preoccupied husband is hurt by this because they're very sensitive to this. It's, it's interpreted as a rejection of them, which is interpreted as a slight abandonment by the preoccupied husband. And he doesn't know what to do. He is hurt. He's angry. And so he says something snarky like, like I guess you didn't hear me, something like that, very short. And the wife is thinking, I, yeah, I guess I didn't. And sort of the wife ignores the comment. The preoccupied husband becomes even more hurt because now she's ignoring him again, and this is interpreted as a rejection. And in this moment, the preoccupied husband literally believes that the wife is going to leave him and divorce him. If you asked him rationally what he thought what was going to happen, he wouldn't say that, but that's that's what his feelings are telling him. And so imagine if... Uh, the 
what they fear actually happened in this moment. Like the preoccupied husband says, hey, there's a parking spot over there. And then the wife says, you know what? Because you pointed out that parking spot, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to have sex with this other guy at work, and I'm going to abandon you because that parking spot that you just pointed out was ridiculous. Well, that would create a lot of really hurt feelings in a in any husband, right? Well, that is the level of emotion that is going through the veins of that preoccupied husband when the wife just doesn't respond and, and parks in a different parking spot. Whereas secure people might be slightly hurt and slightly annoyed, but they'd be like, well, what do I care? They'd very quickly soothe themselves and be like, what do I care what parking spot we're in? And I know that my wife loves me and who cares? Let's move on in life. Let's make today a good day. But the preoccupied person can't let go of it, not because that they're deciding to not let go, but because their emotions are so intense and their experience tells them that at any moment someone is going to leave them and it could be over something as minuscule as this. And so their abandonment sensitivity is triggered, uh, this, this preoccupied husband. He becomes very hurt, very angry, and he escalates the conflict. And within a few minutes, they're just yelling at each other. And the wife is like, what is going on? Why are we fighting about this? That is the experience of a preoccupied person and being in a relationship with a preoccupied person. Some research has looked into speed dating, actually, and different attachment styles. And... Um, in the research, preoccupied people are rated as less attractive than, than other people, usually because they're more anxious and awkward in relationship or in speed dating experiences. Because preoccupied people um, are super anxious, right? So, so you'll see this actually with Tinder dating and otherwise, that preoccupied people, they're so desperate for love and attention and they want secure attachment so badly but when they finally get a chance to achieve it by dating or speed dating, they're so worked up and so in their head that they can't think straight. It's similar to imagine if you met your idol. You know, If I met Paul McCartney, for example, I would you know, shit my pants trying to say something to him. <laughs> I would just be, you know, I have so many things I want to say. I, I want you to like me so badly. And every, you know, it, because I would be so... I, there would be so much meaning poured into that moment and there would be so much worry that I was going to screw it up that it wouldn't just be like meeting any old person, right? Well, that's what it's like for preoccupied people, for many preoccupied people when they start to date. They're like, oh my God, I'm here. I'm finally here. Maybe this is the one. Maybe maybe this. I'm going to marry this person. I don't know. What's going to happen? Is this person going to hurt my feelings? I don't know. And that all that anxiety and worry and preoccupation causes social awkwardness, which can p- push people away. Having said that, as I said before, some preoccupied people are extremely attractive to other people because they have, you know, histrionic people in particular, they become very good at seducing other people sexually and socially. So it's, you know, not every preoccupied person is the same. Preoccupied people tend to report more fear of being single, research shows. They also tend to put a lot of energy into their romantic relationships. When they're single, uh, they often date a lot. They're trying to find a romantic relationship. And when they're in a relationship, they tend to be obsessive about the strength of that relationship. Again, they need a lot of reassurance. Now, in therapy, preoccupied people tend to have more intense relationships with you. They're, they tend to be more engaging. They tend to disclose a lot. They tend to be very quickly attached to you. There's more emotional expression, more emotional behaviors. 
Preoccupied people sometimes can overwhelm the therapist. I've certainly seen this happen before. They praise the therapist a lot, particularly at first. They will reach out more. They'll want more sessions per week. They'll, they might ask more personal questions of you because they're trying to really bond with you. And preoccupied people in therapy, they often talk about one person in their life. It's usually their spouse. They will exhibit low self-esteem. They can seem incompetent at times. Not all preoccupied people, but like dependent or passive-aggressive people will come across as incompetent, which might suck you in counter-transference-wise to fix their life. They might talk about grudges a lot that they've been holding on to, resentments that they've been holding on to. They talk uh, about having strong emotional reactions to other people. You know, they'll, they'll come into your office and they'll be like, okay, you know, this happened and this happened, and you'll, you'll observe that they have extreme reactions to other people that seem overblown. And so, uh, so there's that. Now, some of you might be, be saying, oh, you're just talking about borderline. No, uh, what I'm talking about, so borderline is a subset of preoccupied. So because we have, in the attachment theory language, we have four categories, each of those categories is going to encapsulate a number of different labels in the DSM or a number of different personality spectra. So again, to summarize, preoccupied attachment is developed when you have inconsistent parenting. And this can be mild inconsistency or it can be extreme inconsistency. It could be accompanied by abuse or it might not be accompanied by abuse. And the style of coping for the child is they decide that other people are good and I am bad. And they also decide that the way they're going to cope with this is to be hypervigilant about other people, to pay very close attention to what other, what's happening with other people and to communicate their emotions very quickly, readily, and loudly so that other people can respond to them. They will be quite obsessed with relationships in relation to other people. They will be very worried. They'll be very, they tend to be very jealous, very clingy. They could be dependent type or they can be borderline type. They could be hostile. Um, some of them can be hostile. And they, could, they tend to have a series of very intense relationships vacillating between things going extremely well and things going extremely poorly for them. And, but underlying all this is a chronic sense of loneliness, a chronic sense of abandonment, a chronic sense of, of being rejected. And that causes a lot of distress and can lead to demoralization, suicidal thoughts, and this sort of thing and can also result in domestic violence in extreme cases. And before moving forward, I just want to talk about gender, because a lot of times preoccupation is associated with women. And I'll get more into the research on that later. But I just want to you know, quickly just say that there might be a slight higher rate of preoccupation among women as opposed to men. But I find that that's not a useful way of looking at it. In the same way that borderline is associated with women, some research shows that of people with, who have borderline, two-thirds are women. But, you know, even at that high rate, you have a third of people with borderline are men. And some research shows that when you actually expand the assessment for borderline, you find that half of the people with borderline are men and half are, half are women. So don't genderize this in your head because uh, it'll bias you in your assessments about thing, things. There are plenty of people with uh, preoccupied attachment who identify as male. So just make sure that you keep an open mind about gender when we're talking about this sort of thing. Now, having said that, of course, uh, boys and girls are socialized 
generally differently in our culture. And uh, with preoccupation, it kind of makes sense that girls would opt for that style of coping because they're socialized to be more social and more noticing of that sort of thing, whereas boys are taught to be more, quote-unquote, strong and unemotional, so they tend to be more avoidant, which I'll get to in a second. Well, let's just do that now. Avoidant attachment style. So this is the the second insecure attachment style that we're going to talk about. Again, we have secure and we have insecure attachment styles. And of the insecure attachment styles, we have preoccupied, avoidant, and, dis- and uh, disorganized. Avoidant attachment style, otherwise known as dismissive, defended, anxious avoidant, pathologically independent is a phrase I like to use a lot, a narcissistic personality, obsessive personality, schizoid personality. Um, but I like the term avoidant. I think it's the best descriptor because uh, these people will avoid closeness in relationships and they avoid their own dependency needs. So I like the word avoidant. I think it really describes it well. Dismissive is also good, but avoidant implies a better – avoidant has better implications in that it implies that the person is avoiding something scary or painful to them. You know, they're avoiding. They're like, oh, no, that's I need to avoid that. Like a bear is on the trail as you're running. Well, I'm going to avoid that bear. You know, that's scary. Whereas dismissive implies that they're sort of consciously dismissing something. It's like, well, I, I dismiss that. I dismiss that. And that implies will willpower or agency or something. People with avoiding attachment style, they don't have any agency over their attachment style. No one does. And so um, I, I like the word avoidant. It just seems to fit it better to me. Children with avoidant attachment style or uh, adults who uh, have avoidant attachment style, they tend to be parented by consistently distant parents. So remember with preoccupied, these were inconsistent parents, sometimes loving, sometimes not, sometimes giving, sometimes not. With avoidant people, they had consistently distant parents. The message was that the children need to figure things out for themselves. It's basically a form of neglect on some level, an emotional neglect. Sometimes the parents or the caregivers will shame the children for their neediness, or at least it's it's modeled to them that to be needy, to be expressive of emotion, to depend on other people, this is a shameful thing. The parents might rarely ask for help or support themselves, giving the idea to the kids that asking for help is somehow a weakness. There are two main paths to consistently distant parenting in my experience. So the, the first path is sort of an obvious path, which is distant and abusive. So the parents are distant and they're also abusive. So these are cold parents and frightening parents. So this is a consistent message that's given to the child and the child figures out, I need to avoid those people. They're not safe. They're not sources of reassurance and safety. So I'm going to avoid them because they are consistently a bad idea. The second path to uh, avoid attachment through parenting and being consistently distant is distant, consistently distant and loving. So this might seem contradictory, but it actually is possible. So for these, so imagine you have 15 children in a family and you love your children deeply, but 
you only can give each child one-fifteenth of your love and attention. So this is consistently uh, loving, but it's consistently distant, consistently not enough love is given to that child. Or let's say that you're, the parent is depressed and is consistently depressed, but the, but the parent loves their child and, and gives a, a slow trickle of love to the child, but is in general distant. And the, the child learns that I have to learn how to do things on my own. Or an illness like cancer or fibromyalgia or something that prevents the parents from being able to consistently um, you know, or to pour enough love to the children. Or death, right? Death can result. So say you had a very loving experience with your father and then he died when you were four years old. This will create a memory of love and there's no abuse there, but there's this consistent distance that is created by the loss. Um, parents who were raised to be avoidant often will be avoidant parent, uh, you know, will create avoidant kids themselves, not always. Um, financial stress, working too much can result. So imagine you're working 70 hours a week, both you and your spouse, and you love your children deeply, but you just don't have enough time to give them love and attention. This can result in children resorting to defensive structures of avoidance. Marginalization of groups of people can result in them being stressed out by that and therefore unable to uh, consistent or you know give enough love and attention to their children. Being a refugee, the stress of being a refugee. Um, now, uh, so so again, those those are the two different paths. One is very obvious. If you've been abused and the parents are very distant, then then you can say, oh, okay, my avoidant attachment style came from. You know, because my dad was physically abusive to me, that's why I'm avoidant. That's why I'm avoidant um, attachment style. But this other one is much harder to detect in people. When I when I work with students, supervisees, and clients, sometimes they'll they'll tell me, "No, my parents are lovely. They're they're very lovely people. They're they're nice. They're loving. You know, they're there for me." I don't know why I have avoidant attachment style. It's, it's a bit of a mystery. But when you actually de- you know, dig down deep and start looking at the reality of the parenting, what we find is that the parents were, although nice and loving and never yelled at the kids, just had a general standoff-offish style of parenting the kids. They just sort of like, well, you know, let the kids do what they want. Again, these parents tend to have been raised similarly. You know, when you're raised very hands-off, you tend to raise your kids very hands-off. And if you're too far in that direction, then this can create avoidant attachment style coping in that child, uh, either in a minor way or in a severe way. Okay, so let's get into the defensive structure of people with avoidant attachment style. So as, you know, we talked about earlier about uh, preoccupied people, they had a choice to make. They had to decide, is it me or is it them? And they decided, it's me. I'm the problem. Well, avoidant people, they decided that it's them. And they're like, it's it's not my fault. It's it's their fault. And they develop this negative image of other people. They're like, you know what? I'm good. I can depend on myself. I'm, I, I'm dependable. I can soothe myself. But other people... You know they're bad, they're stupid, they're incompetent, or something like this. 
And sometimes this can become, in extreme cases, very pathological and can result in narcissistic personality where they believe that they are the best person on the planet and everyone else is stupid. So remember that when we're children, we have two different needs uh, in one way of looking at our childhood development. We have a need for self-esteem and we have a need to believe that other people are safe, particularly our parents. So we need to believe that we're good and we need to believe that other people are good. And when the child is chronically feeling bad, one of these two things must be compromised, right? You're like, well, if I'm chronically feeling bad, it, it's either because I, I actually am not a good person or it's got to be because the other people are bad. So one thing has to be sacrificed. And for people who had avoidant uh, attachment style, uh, they sacrificed the other to preserve the self. So the child figures out, uh, how do I cope with all of this difficulty? How do I deal with all of my attachment needs? How do I deal with this pain of loneliness and rejection? What do I do with this? Well, what they decide to do through trial and error is to deactivate their attachment behavioral system. They just turn the whole thing off. So whereas preoccupied people turn it up to 11, uh, avoidant people just turn it off. They turn it down to zero. They learn that they experience much less overall pain and anxiety if they just give up on other people. So remember, this is the child in the room who, when you enter the, the Ainsworth strange situation, the child walks up to the toys, starts playing, doesn't care if the mom pays attention, doesn't care if the mom leaves the room, doesn't care if there's a stranger. They're just like, I just don't care. Now, this isn't a conscious choice. This is a deactivation of the neural pathways that lead to awareness of this. So they, they learn that they really just need to rely on themselves and they're good on their own. And they learn that there's no use in really telling other people about their needs. And there's really no use in even paying attention to their caregivers because what's the point? They're, they're not going to be there anyway. Signs in children, again, they play independently. They're often, quote unquote, in their own world. They don't really engage with other people. They don't ask for help. They don't respond warmly when they are given affection. And by the way, we see the same signs in adults with avoidant attachment. They also don't ask for help. They don't really engage with others. They will play independently, and they don't respond as warmly to affection. People with avoidant attachment style, they defensively downplay or minimize or exclude things from their own awareness. So avoidant attachment people, depending on the severity, they won't even be aware of their emotions or aware of their neediness. And when you talk to them, they'll be like, what are you talking about? I, I'm, I'm fine on my own. And I'll say like, well, what kind of emotions do you feel? And they'll be like, I don't know. I'm fine. I'm, I'm good. So they just, they just it's, it's not because they're purposely avoiding. It's because this is something that their neur neuronal pathways have learned to avoid. And one of the easiest ways to avoid your dependence is just to turn off your access to that system. Now, deep down, they have neediness. Deep down, they have emotions. But they are unaware of them because they have cut off their conscious or certain pathways in their decision-making and their awareness uh, psyche from those experiences to cope with it. So they, they cut themselves off. They're, they're, they're totally unaware, depending on the degree of their avoidant attachment style, of their emotions, their dependency, their neediness their need for support, their need for help. And they either downplay these needs or they just cut themselves off from being aware of them. And they'll say things like, you know, I don't really need people or 
you know, I don't really see the point in depending on other people. I, I can do things on my own. They gener- people with avoidant attachment style, they, they tend to believe that other people really just don't care. And they avoid vulnerability at all costs. This is, a, this is like a, a horrific notion to people with avoidant attachment style. To be vulnerable is like the plague to them. And they'll have extreme difficulty in saying things like, you hurt my feelings, or I need support right now. I will work with avoidant attachment people for 10 years. And at the end of that time, like 5% of the time, they're able to say something like, you hurt my feelings, and not follow up with a bunch of attacks or avoidance or anything. Or, you know, about 5% of the time, they're able to say something like, you know what, I need support right now. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling, and I, I, I would really love it if you would support me. That's something that a secure attached person would be much more readily able to say, and avoidant people would have difficulty saying it and difficulty even recognizing that they need to say something like that. Avoidant attached people are shameful of their own dependency. They believe that their problems are a burden to others. Not, not every avoidant person, but many avoidant people will say things like, well... I don't want to burden people with my problems. And whenever I hear this, I always say something like, has anyone ever said you're a burden? And universally, people are like, nope, no one's ever said I'm a burden. Then why are you? Why do you believe you're a burden? There's a gift you give to other people with your dependency. People like to be dependent on. Um, it's a wonderful thing for relationships when your partners feel like you need them, like you depend on them. So you could give them that gift. Avoidant. Attachment people tend to develop overgeneralizations of other people. They'll just sort of write people off. You know, they'll just be like, in today's world, women refuse to commit to a long-term relationship. That's the incel MGTOW people. Or they'll say, people don't really care as much as I do. You know, I, I care. Pe- other people, they're all stupid. Or everyone's just in it for themselves. There's these sort of blanket statements that avoidant people will say. Preoccupied people can do this too. These are just ways of coping with difficulty. They're trying to tell a narrative that preserves some sort of self-esteem. Now, again, as with preoccupied preoccupied people, the avoidant attachment style structure, defensive structure, these attitudes and behaviors were adaptive when they were children. They helped them survive when they were young. But it usually becomes maladaptive as an adult. It pushes people away. It doesn't alert others to their needs. And the avoidant person will feel just alone and they'll feel like it's sort of pointless to be in a relationship. Uh, It assumes that uh, others won't care and so why reach out? And it creates a life of loneliness and disappointment in others. However, just below the surface of this avoidance, just below the surface of awareness is extreme dependency, extreme neediness, extreme loneliness, a desperation for connection, and uh, often the avoidant people are unaware of this, but sometimes they are. Sometimes they're aware of, you know, I know I act like I'm cool and calm and collected, but just below the surface, I am a mess. They'll, they'll sometimes say that. Um, but sometimes they're unaware of it. Sometimes they deny it. So even though avoidant, so avoidant people often look mature. They often look strong. But, uh, and preoccupied people tend to look weak and emotional. But the only difference is that avoidant people have figured out how to hide it from other people. They've, they've learned how to hide their neediness, their cleanliness, their dependency, even from themselves.
Okay, so looking at the different effects of avoidant attachment on adults, different signs that you might see or detect in yourself is pathological independence. For example, when they move, they won't ask for help. They'll just either hire a mover or move by themselves. When they're getting a job, they don't ask for help. They just try to do it on their own. They might seem aloof to other people. They might seem, quote-unquote, hard to figure out or hard to reach. They might focus on their achievements and their career more often than other people. Often they're very dedicated to their careers, you know, not in a pathological way, sometimes in a pathological way, but you know, just in a notable way. At times they can be very responsible. They can become overwhelmed with negative feelings, which often results in them getting angry. They can blow up randomly with rage at times. And they can become extremely angry and controlling at times. This isn't usually the case, but it can uh, happen. Usually what avoidant people will do when they're hurt is they'll just run away um, instead of trying to control. But it does happen sometimes. Sometimes they, in extreme cases, they, they can become narcissistic. This is a result of the grandiose self emerging. Because remember, they decided early on that they're good and others are bad. They can't depend on their parents, so they have to depend on themselves. And they sort of retain this childhood notion that they are all good, that um, all children have when they're very young. And because of the mistreatment, they were never able to really fully move on from that phase of life. So they believe that they're perfect, that they're awesome. They see everything through that lens, and they believe that other people are incompetent and idiots. So they might talk a lot about that. They might frequently talk about how everyone else is dumb and, you know, they might focus on easy targets like flat earthers or something. Avoidant people learn that when in doubt, it's better just to shut down. It's better just to shut down your emotions, become stoic. In this way, they might be very attracted to mindfulness and meditation. There's nothing wrong with mindfulness and meditation, but I've found that a lot of avoidant people, uh, particularly men, will be attracted to this because it seems like a good solution to their problems because it is in, it's in alignment with their avoidant attachment tendencies, which is to become stoic, to separate from others, to turn inward, and to avoid one's emotions, to try to get rid of one's emotions. And I've spent a fair amount of, in the beginning of my career, I used to go along with this, but now when I see an avoidant person particularly a man, when they start getting into mindfulness and meditation, I'm, and I will actually go after them. I'll be like, well, wait a second. Uh, if, if, if you want to get into mindfulness, great. It has, there are wonderful effects mindfulness does have. But if the result of this mindfulness is you going into further systematic denial of your dependency needs, then I don't think this is healthy. I think it will just um, cause other problems. Because mindfulness is not a relational practice in general. It is a solitary practice, which again appeals to the avoidant personality. Avoidant attachment disorder uh, people, uh, avoidant attachment style people, they often avoid conflict. They can be very nice, but very distant. So when, when conflict arises, some of them will just sort of slink away and say like, okay, I'm out of here. They can be very annoyed with other people's dependency needs, even if they're not in an abnormal way. So avoidant 
attachment people will judge preoccupied people. They'll be like, oh my God, that person is so needy. But they'll also look at secure people and think they're very needy. So uh, uh, any neediness they will think is overblown. You know, they'll just be like, why can't that person just figure out how to do things on their own? Avoidant attachment people have difficulty soothing themselves. This is similar to any insecure attachment. When they're stressed or anxious or angry, they have a really hard time soothing themselves or finding support for it. They often expect that relationships will fail. They sometimes even predict that, like, well, you know, I love this person now, but in the future, I probably won't, and this relationship will probably end. So they might become very pessimistic about relationships, even before there's any evidence to believe so. They often expect to be hurt in relationships, and this is very similar to preoccupation. This is why I don't like it when people distinguish between preoccupied and avoidant too much. The People will often consider avoidant and preoccupied to be very different, but in reality, I find them to be just slightly different uh, coping styles with the same problem. Both of avoidant and preoccupied and disorganized folks have a deep insecurity and have a deep expectation that they're going to be hurt, but they just have different overt ways of coping with that. So uh, another way of looking at it, if you're familiar with preoccupied or borderline, is that every avoidant narcissistic person underneath that is a borderline preoccupied person, if that makes any sense. Uh, Avoidant attachment style people might suffer from FOMO, fear of missing out, because as children, they were generally neglected and generally missing out of things. In families that were distant, where you have a, a fair amount of avoidant children, they will often feel as though everyone else is having a good time and they're the only ones who's alone. They'll often believe that everyone else in the family is close and they are the one distant person, when in fact everyone is distant. Because again, avoidant people give off a vibe that everything's fine. And so when this when the child is looking at everyone else, it's like, well, everyone else seems fine. Why am I struggling so much? They'll think like, well, they must all be getting love and attention and I must not be. So there must be something different about me. You know, what am I missing out on? Um, so you'll, for some people with avoidant attachment, they'll talk about that theme where they just are in a constant state of feeling like they're missing out on something, like they're being excluded from something, being rejected from something. They often avoid situations that might activate their vulnerable emotions, like going to therapy or giving a eulogy or something. These are things that might require or provoke emotional expression, and so they'll just avoid it altogether. They often develop beliefs that romance is dead and that they're not really interested in romance or sex. Not all avoidant people are like this, but they'll, in in an effort to avoid vulnerability and, and avoid pain of relationships, they'll just tell themselves, ah, you know, I don't really need love. I don't really need sex. I don't really need relationships. Now, having said that, sometimes people are just born that way in which I did, you know, I did the deep dive on asexuality and aromanticism. Avoidant attachment people, sometimes um, when someone approaches them with love and attention, they sometimes keep their hopes low and stay reserved or distant. So this is the opposite of preoccupied people. When preoccupied people get that morsel of love, they dive in. They're like, oh my God, it's finally here. Avoidant people, even when they're getting good love and attention, when a good relationship comes their way, they'll say, well, I'm not quite so sure because they don't trust it. They tend to exhibit less affection and less emotional expression. They use less self-disclosure. That's interesting, right? Preoccupied people tend to disclose a lot, secure people right in the middle, or are more, shall we say, 
uh, functional or healthy about that. And avoidant people tend to self-disclose very little. At higher ends of avoidance, they will actually have a policy that they don't tell other people what's on their mind. And this is part of the reason why Facebook is mainly a place for women, because women are socialized to self-disclose and be more preoccupied when they have attachment insecurity. They're socialized to reach out and to self-disclose, whereas men are socialized to be strong and independent, right? And so why would you go to Facebook? So the demographics on Facebook are often quite um, skewed towards women. So we don't have to look far for our gender socialization to see effects on this sort of thing. Um, Avoidant people in close relationships, they display less openness. They might stand or sit farther away. So physically, they might just want physical distance from other people often. They have less eye contact. That's one of the hallmarks of avoidant attachment is that when they talk to you, they tend to look away from you as they're talking to you. They have less vocal pleasantness. So they're less, um, you know, they, they use less uh, vocal pleasantries to soothe other people because they're just not really connected to other people. And they can seem like they're not really interested in a conversation. So uh, when you're talking to them, they might they might appear like they just don't really care about what you're saying. They seek less support from partners during times of stress and provide less support to their partners when their partners are stressed out. This is actually a pretty notable thing to, to highlight in that People with avoidant attachment, they won't even they won't even know that their spouses are suffering. And even if it becomes quite overt, it won't really register in them. So people with avoidant attachment can seem quite uncaring and quite unempathetic. But that's actually not the case. They actually just they have the same amount of compassion and love and affection and empathy as anybody else does, but they it their empathy system doesn't get triggered because they're They've learned through experience to subconsciously avert their attention from such things because when they pay attention to such things, a lot of pain would happen to them when they were young. So a lot of times they, they'll be labeled as cold and uncaring. They're, they're more likely to engage in casual sex and uncommitted sex, like sex workers, strip clubs, online sex workers, this kind of thing. So preoccupied people are uh, they preoccupied people look for sex and relationships as a very quick fix to satisfy or to soothe their uh, attachment needs, which are very much on their minds because they're preoccupied. Avoidant people want attachment deep down, but they don't really trust it. So they have a general avoidance of the whole thing. And they also want to have sex. And so they, so they tend to engage in casual sex where it's uncommitted sex, or like I said, even with sex workers, because they want sexual gratification, and they actually want attachment, and they'll seek attachment from these sex workers or from these casual sex uh, partners, but they will at the same time avoid it, if that makes any sense. Um, And for these reasons, avoidant attachment people masturbate more often. Again, they've learned to be pathologically independent. They've learned that they can't really depend on other people for attachment or ongoing sexual gratification, and they've learned how to do things on their own, so they tend to masturbate more often, according to research. And also, since boys are socialized to be more avoidant and more uh, overtly sexual and, and masturbation is more accepted for boys growing up, this might account for the higher rates of masturbation among men. You know, often they'll say, well, all men 
masturbate more because they're more sexual. They're uh, more driven for sex. But there's a lot of factors such as attachment style and socialization around attachment style and socialization regarding sexuality that can account for the differences in masturbation rates between men and women. Avoidant people are less likely to form a committed relationship. They're more likely to avoid rebounds after a breakup. So after a breakup, they're like, eh, I don't really want to rebound. I just want to be by myself for a while. They're more, uh, they have more instability in relationships. So the same as preoccupied people, they have, so any, any um, insecure attachment style will have difficulty in relationships. It doesn't matter which attachment style you have. And as with any other insecure attachment style, they have poor psychosocial adjustment, meaning they have more psycho- psychological uh, symptoms and more social symptoms after difficulties. They have difficulty remembering their childhood. So later I'm going to get into the brain and memory and whatnot, but it is uh, – I'll just drop this in here – that uh, secure attachment people have the best memories. So they tend to remember the things the most accurately in general on average. Preoccupied people tend to remember things in a distorted way. They tend to remember things as being much worse than what they actually were. And they're much more prone to distorting things as their memories are being encoded and retrieved. Avoidant people just don't encode or retrieve uh, memories very well at all. So avoidant people will often say like, you know, I don't remember that. Or I don't remember what my childhood was like. Or I don't remember what the beginning of my relationship with my spouse was. They'll say stuff like that because – not because they're avoiding it, but because their brain actually processes memories differently. And this is what really helps us to understand that attachment style is not a choice. It is a neurological reality similar to ADHD or schizophrenia. And there are neurological symptoms such as memory retrieval and encoding just in general, not just memories about relationships in your your childhood, but actually just general memory tasks are – uh, not as proficient. Uh, the people aren't as proficient when they have insecure attachment. Avoidant people are more intellectual. They tend to intellectualize more. They tend to be up in their head a lot more. And in therapy, they tend to act as though everything is great. So uh, they're not likely to go to therapy as as opposed to preoccupied people. But even when they do, they tend to sit down and be like, yeah, everything's fine. And they really want to give off this impression like everything's okay and they don't really need any help. So therapists can often feel pushed away by avoidant clients. Okay, so let's go into the fourth and final attachment style, which is another insecure attachment style, which is disorganized attachment style, otherwise known as fearful attachment style or unresolved. But I like disorganized because, again, uh, sometimes when people say fearful, it's a, it's a little silly because we have anxious – some people say preoccupied, they'll call it anxious attachment style, and then they'll have this other category called fearful attachment style. And I find that unless you're really familiar with the jargon, you're going to get those two mixed up because anxiety is fear and fear is anxiety. So <clears throat> um, I like disorganized because really avoidant, preoccupied, disorganized, they're all fearful, right? Um, so I think what they mean when they call it fearful is like you're really fearful. It's just like you have very on-the-surface fear. Unresolved is another word that they use for it. Again, I don't think it's as descriptive as disorganized. I actually don't really like disorganized either, but I don't know. 
this category is, is a bit of a weird one. I actually don't use this category very often because I find that it's much easier for me to conceptualize people either as severe preoccupied, severe avoidant, or a severe mixture. And I find that the disorganized conceptualization doesn't really have a lot of meaning to me. Although some people definitely fit the description of disorganized attachment, which I'll get into in a second. So I don't know. Anyway, um, I guess another way of putting it now that I think about it is if you understand preoccupied attachment and why that develops pretty well, and you understand avoidant attachment and you understand why it develops pretty well, then it's not really that hard to combine the two into what we would call a severe case of disorganized attachment. Um, Now, again, as I said a long time ago, what a lot of people will do that don't really know what they're talking about is they will say, and I've actually had students come to me and say that this is what they were taught, is that if people have a combination, if they have elements of preoccupation and elements of avoidance in attachment, then they have disorganized attachment style. And that is not the case. If you were ever taught that, understand that is not true. Because if you have, say, a minor case of preoccupied attachment style combined with a minor case of avoidant attachment style, that does not mean you have disorganized attachment. A disorganized attachment is when you have basically a severe case of both. You have a severe case of preoccupation and a severe case of avoidance in the same person. And the situation was such that when they were growing up, they they had no way of coping. And so they just, there was no, uh, they didn't land on any consistent way of coping with the world. And so they just kind of basically bounce around from panic situation to panic situation. And they're, they're essentially a uh, way of thinking about it is for, there are a lot of kids who go through severe mistreatment growing up. And some of the kids based on their learning or based on the consistency or based on whatever, the children will land on a consistent way of coping with it. And some of those kids due to the severe mistreatment will choose a severe form of preoccupation, which we could call borderline. They will be extremely preoccupied, extremely reactive, and extremely consistent in their defensive strategy, defensive structure, to threats of abandonment. Other kids will develop extreme avoidance, where they don't have any awareness of their emotional state. They avoid relationships at all costs. They are extremely narcissistic. Um, They might engage in relationships, but it's really on their terms, on their grandiose terms. And they are extremely narcissistic or extremely avoidant personality. And then there's this third group of people who uh, emerge from extreme abuse and mistreatment, who for whatever reason just never landed on either coping style. And they they're sort of worse off in some ways because they don't really have a consistent way of reacting. You know, the narcissist has a consistent way then they can find some happiness sometimes because they can rely on themselves. The preoccupied person can, the extremely preoccupied person can also find some happiness and some stability at times when they perceive that they are getting the extreme love and security that they want all the time. Whereas the disorganized person has doesn't have a consistent way, and so they're they're basically a walking open nerve of wounds and fear. But that doesn't mean that disorganized people are worse off than extreme preoccupied people or extremely 
avoidant people. It just means it's a particular flavor of extreme attachment style insecurity. And so I hope that makes sense. And this is why I don't really like the term because it confuses people. They'll be like, so, because I get a lot of questions like this. I'll be like, so, so if I, I feel like I have a combination of both. Does that may make me disorganized? And I'll dive in a little further. And it's clear to me that they, they aren't that far down the spectrum of insecure attachment. And I'll be like, no, you just have a combination of both. You're, you're, you definitely exhibit insecure attachment, and you definitely exhibit some traits of preoccupation and some traits of avoidant, but it's not to the level of a disorganized style of a com- combination. So I kind of wish that they had this other category where it was like um, a mixture, or they just thought of the whole thing as being on one big spectrum anyway. So for the childhood, again, of people who have disorganized attachment, they experienced uh, a greater amount of childhood mistreatment as opposed to the general category of avoidant or preoccupied. Again, having said that, some people at the severe end of preoccupied attachment, severe end of avoidant attachment, have also experienced extreme maltreatment as well. The parents are often very frightening or extremely uh, uh, neglectful in this situation, but they're often very frightening in the form of abuse. Basically, their childhood was so chaotic that they never developed a consistent defensive strategy or structure, um, as with preoccupied or avoidant children. So specifically to the parents, Mary Main, in her research on disorganized attachment, she's really the one that pioneered the uh, research on disorganized attachment. She found that the parents of children who had disorganized attachment, the parents had trauma, but it was unresolved trauma or loss. So the, um, if, the tr- if parents had trauma in their history and it was resolved, you know, either they were abused or they went through a refugee situation or they had a traumatic death in the family, their, you know, their parent or something, and the parent had eventually resolved that trauma, then that tended to res- not result in disorganized attachment. But if the trauma was unresolved, then this raised the risk of their children developing disorganized attachment. Basically, what the theory goes is that because you have unresolved trauma, you have a lot of symptoms as a result, PTSD, dissociation, anxiety, reactivity, which in turn drastically diminishes the parent's ability to attune to the child and often results in a lot of abuse and extreme reactivity from the parent. So the parent not only is too preoccupied with their own issues to attune to the children, but they're also quite scary to the children and and quite seemingly randomly um, behaving because they have these emerging symptoms that sort of crop every, every once in a while. So children in situations like this are forced to decide, as as I was saying with preoccupation and avoidant. So preoccupied people decide it's me, not them, and avoidant people decide it's them, not me. I'm the good one. They're the bad one. Well, disorganized attachment people, they things were so bad and things were so chaotic that they were convinced that it's both me and them. They decide I'm bad and my parents are bad. Everything is bad. They have a negative image of the self and they have a negative image of other people. They believe they're not worthy of love and they believe that everyone is terrible, scary, frightening, and unsafe. So... That's another way of looking at the defensive structure, which I'll get into more later. 
Research has also found that disposition or temperament plays a role in the development of disorganized attachment. For example, when children are born generally irritable or generally inconsolable or generally hypervigilant, these traits that some children are born with tend to confer risk of developing disorganized attachment, which is interesting to think about, right? The That biology uh, could play a role in the development of attachment because, of course, it would. But again, it, just because someone's born irritable or born inconsolable or born hypervigilant, you have to combine that with massive mistreatment, which results in disorganized attachment. So remember to the Ainsworth experiment, uh, Mary Main and Solomon in 1990, and I think in the, in the 80s, found that about 4% of the infants in the strange situation could be categorized as disorganized. And remember, these were the children, the infants, who exhibited what I would characterize as weird, the bizarre, strange behavior. They didn't really follow any logical thing. Um, you know, when the parent returned, they might run to the parent and then flop on the ground. Or when the parent returned, they might freeze in fear and laugh strangely. They had, quote-unquote, uh, sequential displays of contradictory behavior. They might have simultaneous displays of happiness and sadness. They might have um, mistimed movements is what they would call it. Like they, they would just appear weird to, to the person who would, who would watch this. They might freeze in place or collapse on the floor or enter a, a daze like, a, like, a, like they're in a trance. Um, one child would cover their mouth with their hands as if they wanted to stifle a scream when their parents returned. So there's all this like weird behavior that doesn't seem to, uh, you know, it obviously is not secure children behavior and it doesn't, it's not avoidant because avoidant kids act like they don't care. It's not preoccupied because the preoccupied are sending a lot of signals like, please don't leave me, please don't leave me. With disorganized, it was just all over the place. And so that was the difference with those children. So as adults, they'll have a lot more psychopathology than other people. They're, um, you know, are, they're associated with pretty much everything in the DSM. Research has identified pretty much everything in the DSM can. You'll have higher rates of disorganized attachment with those people. Um, they're more likely to be symptomatic. So a disorganized attachment person with depression or PTSD or dissociation is going to be more symptomatic with those uh, issues. They can become overwhelmed with negative feelings. They have very, they have a very, very hard time soothing themselves. In fact, the people I've worked with with disorganized attachment basically have no way to soothe themselves. They are basically just stuck in their own terror and upsetness. They're extremely undifferentiated from other people, and um, you know it's pretty awful. It's preoccupied attachment is associated with depression, anxiety, eating disorders substance abuse, borderline, and antisocial. Avoidant has been found to be associated with bipolar, schizoaffective, eating disorders, schizophrenia, conduct disorders, and antisocial. But really, um, this is a broad topic, and um, there's not a lot of data on this. Just know that at higher levels of insecure attachment, whether it's preoccupied, avoidant, or disorganized, know that symptoms are going to be greater. Psychopathology is going to be more likely present. People with disorganized attachment, they have a diminished ability to identify emotional expressions in other people, research has found. 
So people just because of their mistreatment growing up, disorganized attachment people have a hard time even interpreting the emotional states of other people. And they also have higher levels of negative emotions themselves. Just think of like the main quality of disorganized attachment is just a ton of emotional dysregulation. When they're upset, they're really upset and they stay upset for a long time and they don't recover very well and they're not really soothed by anything. It's hard to soothe them and it's impossible for them to soothe themselves, which can lead to them basically being chronically distressed because they don't have time to recover from each distressing moment uh, to the next. So they're just in a constant, constant state of fear and distress. They often lack a self. They don't really know what they want. They don't really know who they are. So just as an example that I was wa- I was watching the Ted Bundy documentary on Netflix recently, and there's interviews with Ted Bundy, and you get this sense that he had disorganized attachment. In the documentary, they sort of allude to the fact that he might have been mistreated growing up, but we don't really know because Ted and no one else really talked about his childhood, and Ted tended to talk about his childhood like everything was great. But it's clear to me that something bad happened to Ted, and he had... Uh, a disorganized attachment as an adult. Now, people that is, people with disorganized attachment don't become serial killers, but uh, very few people become serial killers. But the way of looking at Ted, I would see him as disorganized because when you watch the documentary, you hear him his account. It, it, he describes it pretty well. So, in the beginning, when he's young, he's I don't know, just out of high school, he doesn't really know how to relate to other people. He talks about, and other people talk about him, how he just seemed awkward. He didn't really know what to do with himself. And so he's he's not very mature. He doesn't really know how to interact with other people. And then he, but he really, really wants to connect with other people. And he really wants to have a strong romantic relationship. And so he met a girl and would try to charm her. And he became extremely attached to this one girlfriend. And just he talks about how he was just overwhelmed with the feelings of romance and attraction. He didn't know what to do with them. And then when uh, she broke up with him, he, again, he, he says, I had no idea what to do with my emotions. I was in a state for months that I was in such a you know weird situation. I didn't know what to do. This is disorganized attachment. Now, for Ted Bundy, the way that he coped with this was to channel all this um, emotional dysregulation into a task of revenge, which gave him a purpose in life, gave him something to focus on, which resulted in murder and all this other kind of stuff. And uh, that was particular to Ted Bundy. But it's a common thing for disorganized people to kind of get into this weird reactivity to distress. It's a very weird thing to resort to murder and necrophilia when your attachment needs aren't being met, right? And so uh, other disorgan- most disorganized people don't do that kind of thing. What, what they will do, though, is they'll just do bizarre things. If you've ever observed people with disorganized attachment, and I'm sure some of you actually have disorganized attachment, you can look back on episodes of their lives or your life and see that you had times when you had extremely odd periods when it came to attachment distress, and that can be categorized as disorganized attachment. To me, I just like to call it severe mixed insecure attachment. <laughs> but, but anyway, so now sometimes you will, uh, because 
they don't really know any better. They'll hear a lecture on disorganized attachment and they'll just be like, oh, these people are crazy, right? They're cray cray. They're running around all cray cray and that's what they're like. So I just need to watch out for the cray people and that's disorganized attachment. Uh, that's not true. Disorganized attachment people act exactly like everyone else. They, their experience is mostly internal. You would have a hard time detecting someone with disorganized attachment unless you really knew them very well. It's only And plus, it's only when they're distressed that their symptoms come up. And even if they are distressed, they might only show their symptoms to particular people. In fact, empirical evidence has indicated that some adults with disorganized attachment can actually become well-adjusted, even though they experience severe mistreatment. They can have disorganized attachment and actually figure out a way to function in their life. And this is related to this whole thing is just because you have a insecure attachment style in general, whether it's disorganized or otherwise, that isn't a, uh, it's not a death sentence to your romantic life or to your happiness. There is such a thing of figuring out a way to cope, figuring out a way to heal, and what we call earned attachment security through therapy or relationships with other people. You can, you can earn secure attachment through positive, healthy interactions with other people. So in therapy, disorganized attachment people, by definition, they're the most insecurely attached clients you'll ever see. Um, now, some preoccupied and avoidant clients can be on the severe end, but dis- disorganized attachment people, by definition, are severe. Thus, you are going to have extremely strong countertransferential reactions to disorganized attachment people. You will probably never feel right with them. At least I have never felt right with them because they, they never really get into the groove of therapy. For preoccupied people, there is a consistency to their responses that as a therapist, you can kind of get into that groove. An avoidant person, same thing. With disorganized, as a therapist, you'll never be able to predict what's going to happen week to week because of this disorganization in their attachment structure. And so everything's always going to feel off and inconsistent and weird to you. They, it, could also, it could also just feel weird. It could just feel like, what is happening? What's what's going on here? I feel like I feel like I I'm in space. I'm like untethered when I am, you know, working with this person. Because the client is struggling from minute to minute and they're and they don't ha- again, they don't have any defensive structure. They don't have a consistent way of coping with it. So they're just in a constant state of fear. So another uh specific thing that I'm sure isn't true of all people with disorganized attachment th- that I've experienced, which is that when you try to paraphrase what they say, they often don't agree with you. So you'll be listening, and you're really trying to stay attuned to what they're saying, and then you attempt to paraphrase because you're like, okay, I think I get what they're saying, and you attempt to paraphrase you. So you say, okay, so I think, are you saying this? Is, this, is that what you're saying? They will often either say, no, you got it completely wrong, or they'll just kind of blandly say, yeah, maybe, kind of, and then they'll just move on with their story. And this is, again, because they don't really know who they are or even what they're saying, let alone what you're saying and how you're connecting with them. Plus, they're so distrustful and so scared of other people that when you paraphrase, they might actually distort what you're saying to such an degree, to such a degree that they're like, no, that's completely not what I was saying. And because they're, the way they perceive things is so distorted. Now, 
extreme avoidant people and extreme preoccupied people can do this too. But again, since disorganized is only severe attachment injured people, then all disorganized people are like this. They usually distort things greatly. For example, in couples therapy, their accounts will be wildly different from each other. And disorganized people are often entwined with abusive people, perhaps terribly abusive people. Like I had a client once who was sexually abused by their family, and they were in their 50s or 60s and still heavily entwined with their sexually abusive family. And it's just weird, right? It's think you'd think like, well, if those people sexually abused you, wouldn't you want to run away from them? But because of the abuse and because of the frightening treatment that this person went through, they developed disorganized attachment, which means that as adults, they don't really know what they want. They don't really have an ability to sift through the goals of life and how to preserve themselves. And they will just do strange things because it makes sense that when we're abused by our parents, we we still long for that secure attachment. We still long for that love and attachment that we've always wanted to get. So it makes sense that you would want to return home and try to get that love and attention. But if you were not as mistreated and didn't have that much insecure attachment, you would sort of balance that out with the uh, the thoughts of like, well, I also don't want to be abused anymore, and I also hate that person for the way they treated me, so I'm not going to return home. So most people would be like, although I want to return home, I don't think that's healthy for me. I'm not going to do that. People with disorganized attachment, they don't have any guiding principles to their lives, and so they will act on primitive instincts, and one of our primitive instincts is to meld with our parents, and so sometimes they'll, they'll do stuff like that. Again, not always, but sometimes. All right, so those are the four different attachment styles. Now let's go on to working models. This is an important thing. I've already kind of talked about this, but let's let's really dive deep into what a working model is in attachment theory. Sometimes you can use other words for working models like mental model or inner working model, or in object relations, you would call them an interject, or in my psychodynamic systems theory, you would call it an internalized relational experience. In schema therapy, you would call it a schema. And in narrative therapy, you might call it some sort of grand narrative about your life. But we're going to call them working models in this talk. So according to attachment theory and John Bowlby, we develop two different general working models. We develop a working model of the self, and we develop a working model of other people. Now, the working model of the self and of others is not a uniform thing, and I'll get into that in a second. But It's a general way of looking at how we develop our understanding of other people. We develop these working models, these ideas or belief systems about self and others early in life, mainly between the six-month point and three years, so very early on. And the years from three to six, the working models are definitely susceptible to change and uh, but after six years old, working models tend to be fairly fixed. Now, you can modify them later on with therapy, and I'll get into that in the therapy section. But really, your working model is pretty much solidified by the age of six. This can be quite depressing to people, but it's, it's really true. Now, these working models form how we see ourselves and how we see other people. 
They form our assumptions about ourselves and our assumptions about other people, and they help us predict things about ourselves and about other people. These working models can contain both conscious elements and unconscious elements about ourselves and others. They serve to predict other people's behavior and our own behavior and our own reactivity. They serve to help us understand ourselves and other people, and they serve to appraise social situations that are happening in the moment. Let me kind of give a parallel example here. We all have a working model of what a dog is. You know, when you all that you all out there, just think about how all the associations you have with a dog. And maybe if you have to think about a particular breed, if you have to, you have a working model of that dog. And it's based on your experience with those dogs. When you approach a new dog, your working model helps you to understand that dog and predict their behavior. So for example, if you see the dog wagging its tail, Well, you weren't born with an understanding that a wagging tail is a good thing. What you did is through your experience with dogs, you learned that when a dog wags its tail, it's happy to see you and it's not a threat. So that is something that you incorporated into your working model of dogs. And so when you see a wagging tail, it helps you to predict with this dog that they're not going to chew your face off. Now, some people have had horrible experiences with dogs. So even if a dog is wagging its tail, when they approach a dog, they are terrified. Their working model informs them that this dog might chew their face off because of their experiences. For example, with me, I grew up with a lot of dogs in my neighborhood and no one had leashes. There was only one dog in my neighborhood that was on a leash and it was a crazy dog, but I, and I felt so bad for it. But everyone else, they just let their dogs roam free. And sometimes neighbor dogs from way down the road would just come waltzing into my yard and like walk into my house because we would keep our door open in the summer. And that was just a normal part of life. We're just like, hey, you know, so-and-so is visiting. And it was just this normal thing. And the dogs all did fine. And so for me, the idea that a dog is a threat is extremely... Um, not in my working model. Now, have I seen dogs attack people? Yeah. In fact, I, I got bit by a Doberman pincer one time when I was really young. But that was a, a, you know, a very anomalous situation. So my uh, working model of dogs is that I, um, I, I have a very positive working model of dogs. And I generally predict that dogs are going to be safe, even when they're upset and barking. Um, I think I talked about this in another episode. I'm not quite sure. Maybe I was talking about this with someone else. But uh, I was walking around. I was walking my dog down the street, and this puppy comes tearing around the corner. It's just, it's, it's just a. And I don't know where the owner is. Sort of off leash dog, which is kind of a rare thing in Seattle. I'm fine with it, but the dog is just screaming, running towards towards me and my dog. And if and there was no indication that the dog was happy or angry, or it just was determinedly just sprinting right for me. Now, if I had a bad working model of dogs, then I would have been scared, but I didn't. I had a very good. I have a very good working model of dogs, and so I just assumed that the dog was just happy to see me, or I don't know. I just didn't think anything bad would happen. 
And that's what happened. The dog ran up to me and just wanted to lick me and then wanted to sniff my dog's butt. And then the owner came from around the corner and said, I'm so sorry. And so now let's say that I had a very negative working model of dogs. And uh, so working models are an interactional experience. So the dog is running towards me and I have a, a very negative working model of dogs. And so I tense up and I get angry and I draw my dog toward me and my dog picks up on my anxiety. And maybe even I put my hand out to like defend myself against this dog. And the dog interprets all this behavior, including my own dog, as a sign of danger. And then the puppy runs up and suddenly starts to get aggressive because I'm defending myself and I'm being aggressive and my dog is freaking out because I'm upset. And my dog is being aggressive. And now this puppy is being aggressive. So our working model is an interactive process. It's not just a passive thing of, of interpretation and prediction. We actually can affect the world and affect the outcome of a situation depending on our working model. So we have working models of ourselves and we have working models of other people, particularly our loved ones. Some people have working models of spouses as being trustworthy and loving. Some people have working models of spouses or partners in general as being untrustworthy or withholding. Some people see themselves as good and smart, and some people see themselves as bad and incompetent. For example, let's say that your spouse is, isn't talking much lately. You notice that your spouse is quiet and reserved, and how you interpret this depends on your inner working model of other people, particularly your inner working model of spouses. You notice that you feel upset, and how you interpret this depends on your inner working model of the self. Um, you know, so so getting back to the example of the of your spouse, if you have a generally good working model of others, then you're like, well, I'm sure that my spouse is being quiet because they're stressed out. I'm sure it has nothing to do with me. But if you have a bad working model of other people and your spouse is being quiet, then you're going to think, oh, they're they're punishing me for something, or they're angry at me for something, or they're they're thinking about cheating on me, or they're thinking about leaving me. Or now this might not be a, a conscious process. This might be a subconscious process. What you might notice in yourself is that you're critical. You might say like, oh, um, you know, what kind of bullshit is this? Like, why isn't she answering my questions? And that that's what you'll be thinking consciously. But deep down, what you're actually feeling is this enacting of your working model that predicts that because of this lack of talkativeness in your spouse, this means that they're going to leave you because that's based on your experience. And also uh, on yourself is you're feeling upset. You feel an emotion of distress. And let's say you have a working model of the self that is generally good. And you say to yourself, okay, well, I'm feeling distressed. It's, it's probably for a good reason. And um, I'm resilient and I can get through this and I can find support. I'll figure this out. That's a good working model of the self. Let's say you have the same emotional feeling of distress and you have a bad working model of the self. Well, you're, you're going to say to yourself, this is going to destroy me. I, it's probably my fault. I am ashamed of having this feeling. And all those interpretations and predictions will dictate how you're going to feel about it, dictate how you act, dictate how you come across to other people. So working models are very important when it comes to attachment. Um, we develop these working models as a way of trying to understand our world and facilitate attachment. So, uh, for example, 
with avoidant attachment people. When they're young, they are being uh, neglected to some degree. They're being um, mistreated to some degree. And so they develop over time as a way of sort of coping with this neglect and distant parenting style is they develop a working model of their parents as being cold and distant and not available. And so this helps them to predict in the future. It guides their behavior in the future. So through that working model, they develop avoiding attachment because when they have a need for help or an emotional need, they look to their working model and they say, well, I predict that my parents aren't really going to respond well to this. So I might as well just not reach out for help and I might as well just try to depend on myself or avoid my emotions altogether. So the working model uh, is developed early and compels the attachment style that we see in an outward way. Uh, Another example here is that you're an accountant and it's almost tax season. And you know that you're going to be working 24-7 for a couple of months helping people with their taxes. And your working model of yourself will help you predict what will happen and thus how you're going to plan for it. So let's say your inner working model for yourself is that you're good and competent and resilient. Then as you head into tax season as an accountant, you trust that things will generally work out. And you'll, you know, make some plans for how to cope with that. But in general, you're like, yeah, you know, things will work out. And I trust other people because they'll be here for me as well because you have a potentially a good working model of other people. But let's say your self-working model is bad. Then as you head into tax season, you're going to predict that you're going to screw things up or you're going to become overwhelmed and you're incapable of, of handling such stress or the stress will destroy you somehow, or people will, th- will see that you're an imposter and you're incompetent and you'll get fired or something. And so based on this prediction of the future, you'll start making different kinds of plans. You might start to panic early. You might start to drink a lot to cope with it throughout, throughout that process, which of course would make you less um, competent on the job. Maybe you'll become histrionic and make sure that everyone knows that you're stressed out because you predict that you're going to need to make yourself very noticeable in order to get any support for it. So you understand how working models definitely affect how we act and how we see the world and how we interact with the world. It's a very powerful idea, and I use it in therapy all the time. It's related to the concept of corrective emotional experiences. So working models and attachment are wonderful things to know about yourself. So when I talk with my clients and with myself, being aware of your working models, being aware of your attachment style is a wonderful thing that can give you a lot of power over your life. But if you really want to change things, you have to alter your attachment style. You have to alter your working models, which you do through corrective emotional experiences. Essentially, you're trying to help through therapy the client internalize a different experience. So if they have a bad working model of the self, the only reason why they developed that was because they were they were given reasons to believe that they're a bad person early in life. So through therapy, by treating them like they're a good person, then they internalize a new working model for the self. Or through object relations terms, they have a new interject or a bolstered interject that becomes more prominent in their psyche. This could just be done through positive self-talk. So when you tell yourself, I'm a good person and I'm worth it, gosh darn it, then you're internalizing this new idea into your working model. You're trying to to bolster a particular idea of your working model of self. So 
as we develop, our working models become increasingly resistant to change. You know, as I said earlier, they tend to develop greatly up until the age of three and then um, to a lesser extent until the age of six. And then they become increasingly resistant to change as we get older. Um, partially because our, when we have new experiences that don't really agree with our working models, we tend to defensively exclude them to preserve the integrity of our current working models. When you have a working model of self that is bad and someone tries to tell you that you're good, they try to compliment you, you, try, you reject it because you're like, wait, that doesn't fit with my working model. And uh, if it's one thing I've learned is that if I allow myself to have a more flexible working model about myself, bad things happen. So I better continue to uphold that I'm a bad person and that compliment is insincere or you don't really know me or some kind of thing along those lines. Um, as an example of this, uh, I had a uh, client who was very preoccupied attachment a long time ago, and I repeatedly demonstrated her that I was trustworthy and safe. So she had a working model of other people that they were not trustworthy, not safe, and would never really care about her and would constantly be trying to abandon her. So this is, this is a thing about you know borderline people. What borderline people, higher-end borderline people, will often talk about is, and some of you actually will email me about this experience, they will chronically assume that their therapist wants to reject them. They will chronically believe that their therapist is secretly trying to fire them. They will, they will frequently think, oh, I bet you my therapist wants to get rid of me. They'll think that a lot. And so, and th- so this is a working model of other people. The working model to the borderline is that other people are just on the edge of abandoning you, just on the edge of abandoning them. And so with this borderline client, I repeatedly provided corrective emotional experiences that demonstrated to her that I would never leave her. I would even explicitly say things like, unless I die, then there's really no chance of us being separated because I'm always going to have my practice and I'm always going to live in Seattle. There's I, I love Seattle. All my family and friends are in Seattle. I'm not leaving. So unless you terminate with me or I die, which, you know, could happen strangely, I'm never going to abandon you. I'm never just going to uh, fire you as a client. It's just never going to happen. So, and yet every time she came in to see me, she was convinced I was on the verge of abandoning her. Now, what this says to us is that Working models are extremely resistant to change as we get older in age, but with enough effort, they can be altered. And this is what happened with her, is that for with years and years of me demonstrating to her uh, through various different ways, not just the ways I'm talking about, there's probably a hundred different ways that I demonstrated it to her, over a very long period of time, years and years of therapy, her working model absolutely changed. And she emerged from that therapy with a working model of other people that was trustworthy for the most part, that was non-abandoning for the most part. So as I said earlier, uh, these working models affect and shape our relationships. You know, I gave this example with the dog, but let's get more specific with attachment. So let's say someone who grows up with a secure base, they have parents who are attuned and they grow up uh, secure with secure attachment. Well, they tend to believe they have working models of other people that are good, right? So 
as they experience, um, so they, they, they tend to be more open, less accusatory, and therefore when they engage in relationships, other people tend to like secure people more, and therefore their relationships tend to be, tend to be better which further solidifies and you know confirms their idea that other people can be trusted. So the vi- and vice versa, right? So if you're uh, if you're a avoidant person, the reason why you're avoidant is because early in life you learn that other people can't be trusted and so you're just avoiding attachment altogether. But every once in a while you dip into relationships and because you have a working model of other people as being consistently distant from you and consistently unavailable, consistently untrustworthy, then you're very aloof with them. You're very standoffish with them. And other people don't really like that. And so they end up leaving you or they end up not really paying attention to you because you're not alerting them to your issues. You're not telling them that you need support. And this distant style of relationship confirms your idea that other people are distant. And then the working model of other people as being untrustworthy and unsafe becomes more solidified. Um, and it takes therapies sometimes to alter that. So when, when people with insecure attachment styles just sort of go off into the world and try to fix this for themselves, it can be very difficult because their working models can often get in their way. And it takes a therapist who understands attachment to see this for what it is and actually provide a corrective experience to counter this so that they can uh, stop this vicious cycle. Now, as I said, working models affect our attachment styles across different contexts and different types of relationships. For example, let's say that in general, overall, you have a 50% preoccupation attachment style and a 50% secure attachment style. So you're 50 preoccupied and 50% secure. But with your therapist, you're like 80% secure and 20% preoccupied. So with your therapist, you you exhibit a different attachment reactivity to that person because that relationship is very strong for you and very dependable. With your spouse, on the other hand, you're more like 50-50 because you've had conflicts, you've had difficulties with your spouse. And then with your cat, you are 95% secure and 5% preoccupied with your cat because your working model of cats is is very much is more positive than your working model of spouses um, and working models of therapists. So I hope that, you know, comes across is that it's not this uniform thing for people. Now your overall working models definitely influence your individual working models of other people, but individual working models can definitely be different. And this is why people act different in different relationships. So common working models for insecure attachment folks are that other people are untrustworthy, other people will eventually leave me, others are incompetent and need to be guided, others will cheat on me, others will abandon me, others have aggressive urges and are going to hurt me, and others are dangerous. So that is working models, and we're going to sprinkle in that language throughout this deep dive. Okay, so that's working models. Now let's get into mentalization, otherwise known as reflective functioning. This is a concept developed by Peter Fonagy. I mentioned him earlier. He was made famous starting in 2002, so rather recent. He's a Hungarian-born British psychoanalyst, as I said. So 
This has to do with attachment and development, and it has to do with the idea that children at first, when they're very young, they don't have the ability to imagine that other people have minds of their own. So that's what mentalization means. It's the ability to mentalize, is the ability to uh, imagine that other people have a mind that's different than yours, and also that you have a mind that's different from other people. When children are first entering this universe, they they feel their own emotions and they notice their own thoughts and urges, but they don't really have the ability to understand other people. They don't, under, they don't understand that other people have thoughts and urges of their own and emotions of their own and experiences of their own. It's completely foreign to them. They're completely undifferentiated from other people. They, they sort of believe that everyone else is just the pawn in their own personal universe. This is what we call normal infantile narcissism, right? They don't really have empathy yet because they don't have the ability to mentalize that you have a mind, you have your own experiences. And it's actually emotionally healthy and developmentally healthy that they are uh, prevented from understanding that because they need time to develop their, their self before they can really understand that other people have feelings too. And consequently, they don't really care about other people's feelings because they don't know that other people have feelings. They sort of expect that everyone will know how they feel. You know, because they don't have the ability to mentalize, they don't have the ability to understand that their mind is unknown to other people. When children enter this world, they, they just assume that everyone understands what their emotion is. They're hungry. They just assume like, well, I feel hunger, therefore the universe feels hunger too, right? Because I am the universe. hope that makes sense. So, but at the same time, they don't really know their emotions. They don't, they don't say those things to themselves. They don't say, I am hungry. What they say is, they just, they're just primally acting. They're just like, ah, I'm upset. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. And it's pre-verbal, right? I'm putting it into words, but when we're really young, it's pre-verbal. It's just the experience. It's sort of like, imagine the, for the first half of a second when you stub your toe, you, you just you know, jam your toe into the corner of your bed, and it is pure pain. For even adults, for the first half second, you are pre-verbal. If someone asked you to articulate in that first half second how you feel, you wouldn't have any words for it. You would just embody the pain that was shooting through your body in that moment. And then as, you know, the seconds tick by, we slowly start to be able to say, oh, this is pain that I'm feeling. Oh, my God. But for a split second, we don't really differentiate from that. And that's, that's the experience all the time for infants. So that this is these are ideas that are related to mentalism that we're, we're pure emotion and we don't have the ability to reflect this reflective functioning which is the other term for mentalization we don't have the ability to reflect on our own emotional state and our own thoughts and therefore the thoughts and emotional states of other people we don't have the ability to mentalize to imagine that our brain and mind and experience is different from other people as children have an ongoing close relationship with their caregivers, they develop an understanding of other people's minds. So this is the capacity to go beyond just behavioral observation of other people and instead go behind the behaviors of other people and actually explain the actions of others and of the self in terms of thoughts, feelings, and intentions. So when we're very young, we look at our mothers and say, she is now feeding me food. And that is what's happening. Uh, 
Whereas when you develop the ability to mentalize, you can look at your mother and say, she loves me and wants me to feel good, and she has empathy for me, and she's feeding me because of that. So that's the ability to mentalize, is to imagine, uh, to look at behavior, and then take guesses as to what mind experiences, what emotional experiences, what urges and goals are happening behind those behaviors. We're not born with that ability. So this is all elements of the mind. You know, Through this process uh, with our parents and our caregivers, we learned that other people have minds and I have a mind, and they can hold someone else's mind in their mind. So this is a phrase that people often use with mentalization, is the ability to hold mind in mind, right? So in your mind, you can hold someone else's mind. You can imagine that they have internal mental states with their own feelings, thoughts, desires, needs, beliefs, and goals. And when you develop mentalization with in, in interacting with other people, the child can therefore develop empathy, right? You can't have empathy for other people as you know and can imagine that they have feelings. And also through mentalization, children learn the ability to communicate more accurately their own experience so other people can help them. So mentalization develops best within a good enough relationship, within you know secure attachment parenting. Secure attachments foster it better, according to research, quicker, more thoroughly. Caregivers with better mentalizing it. So when you when you are a secure attachment, you have a you're better able at mentalizing. You're better, you're more accurate in your mentalization of other people. Securely attached people are better able to accurately read other people's emotions and thoughts and feelings. And therefore, if you're a parent who is securely attached, you therefore have a greater ability at mentalizing your own children. This is called parental reflective functioning. It's the ability of the parent to understand the mind of the child, to reflect on it, to hold the mind of the child in their own mind, and to respond well. So remember when I talked about attunement? So the ability to attune is critical for helping children to develop secure attachment. Well, in order to attune to your child, you have to be accurate in your ability to mentalize, to know the mind of your child. You can look at behavior and say, okay, my child is flinging their arms around, their face is red, and if you were raised in such a way that it's hard for you to mentalize, it's hard for you to really imagine and predict what's going on in other people's minds, then you're just going to look at that behavior and like, well, I don't know what the hell's going on. And it might become very frustrating to you. You might avoid the child as a result, or you might get angry at the child. But if you have been raised well enough and you have secure attachment enough and you have a good enough mentalization, good enough parental reflective functioning, then over time you're going to learn, oh, that looks like that looks like frustration. That looks like pain to me. Or that looks like an earache to me. Or that looks like hunger to me. And over time, you, you get good at that, and that facilitates good parenting, which facilitates the child's ability to mentalize. And so we can see how these things get passed down from one generation to the next, how insecure attachment, how lack of mentalization can work its way down through the generations. And that with public policy that can help parents through this, we can end that chain of terribleness. Now, more specifically, the way that good parents help their children develop mentalization ability is that the parents will actually mirror the infant's mind to the infant. So the parent 
so the child is, say, upset, and the parent will show a corresponding facial expression and will use corresponding words. They might even put it to language when the child becomes verbal. They might say, oh, you're angry, or oh, you're upset, or oh, you really don't want to go down for a nap. I can see that you're very upset and you really don't want to miss out on playtime with your friends. I get that. Or, oh, you seem so happy right now. Or, wow, you seem like you're really having a good time at the park today. Or, oh, you seem really tired right now. Every time that the parent does that, and it's not just verbal, it's, it's nonverbal as well, Every time that a parent does that who's attuned and paying attention and sensitive and accurately mentalizing, the child is slowly learning about their own mind. It is something that a lot of people need to understand, a lot of parents need to understand, that children don't naturally develop an ability to understand their own mind, that you have to teach them. And the way that you do that in the easiest way is that whenever they have an experience, you just you try to figure out what's happening for them and you try to put it into words. And you try to reflect it yourself. So this is all done, hopefully, in a non-anxious way by the parent. Um, and it helps the child learn about their own emotional states. So prior to, to you doing this for your children, again, the children doesn't, the, the children, they don't know that they even have a mind. They're just reacting. They're just pure emotion. They're that half second when they stub their toe but they're that way all the time. They're just like, I'm having emotions. And there's, there's no reflection on their own mind. There's no ability to understand what's happening. They just feel like this is all-encompassing. It's overwhelming the emotions that they experience at first. And so as you put it into words, as you contain it, as you reflect it, the child is like, oh, so my parent is reacting to me right now, and she says that I'm tired. Okay, is this what tired is? Because it, it is kind of a weird feeling. I feel sort of, I feel like I don't have energy, but I also feel annoyed. I feel angry. Is this what tired is? Interesting. Okay, I'll catalog that away. The next time I feel this, I'll try to remember that this is what tired is like. And so through this experience that the child mentalizes about themselves, they figure out, oh, I have a mind. I have a reality that is particular to me. My tired emotion is contained within me. My parents, everyone around me, when I'm tired, they are not necessarily tired. So I have a mind, and therefore, wait, other people must have a mind as well. My parent is really helping me understand my own mind, and then eventually the, the child over time is like, wait, so if I have a mind, other people must have a mind too. And you'll actually see some children do stuff like this. They'll, they'll start, they'll enter a phase where they'll enter an inquisitive phase about their parents. They'll be like, so dad, do you ever get tired? <laughs> you know, they'll just ask questions like this and you, you'll say like, uh, well, yeah, yeah, dad gets tired sometimes. And the kid, the kid is piecing it together. They're just like, wait, so dad has emotions too? It's mind-blowing to, to children. It's just mind-blowing. And what a revelation that other people have minds and their own thoughts and feelings, right? So good parents help the child understand that other people have minds as well. So not only do they mirror, this is called mirroring emotions to children, not only do they help the child understand that they have their own mind, but they also try to uh, help the child overtly to understand that they have minds too. So the uh, parent will, in a non-anxious, non-pressuring way, 
will say something like, oh, I can't really play games with you anymore because I'm tired from work all day. So could we just lay here and play a very relaxing game or something? Now, there's there's a range there because you don't – if you overwhelm the child, because the child has other needs as well. They have a need to learn about your emotions and your uh, your mind. But they also have a need for safety and security. And if you tell them, you know, I'm pretty depressed and suicidal and I have no meaning in my life, then they will be overwhelmed with the fear of their life because they need you to be solid. And if – because if you're not solid – then they're really not solid because they they really don't know what to do in the world. And so they need to believe that you're strong and you're okay. But they also need to benefit from you telling them what your experience is. Like, I'm happy when I do this. And, oh, I really like it when you pick up your toys. It really makes me feel good. These are all things that help the child to understand, oh, so my parents feel good when I put away the toys. So when I put away the toys, that they watch me do that, and that affects their emotional state. I know what it's like to feel good. I want my parents to feel good, and so I'm going to put away my toys. These are all novel things that children don't necessarily have when they're born, and so we have to help them with that. Now, bad parenting can result in an impaired sense of mentalization. Basically, the child has an inability to understand what others are thinking and feeling. They also have an inability to understand themselves. They often will misinterpret other people's intentions. They can be very suspicious of other people or paranoid about other people, or they can just avoid the whole thing. So up until this moment, as I'm talking about all the insecure attachment styles, another way of describing these attachment styles and the the working models thereof is a distortion about other people based on a reality that they had when they were young. So when they were young, there was a reality that compelled them to have a working model that other people are bad, to um, assume that other people have bad attentions because that was true when they were children. But then they grow up, and even though other people, they meet other people that aren't like that, they assume that they do because of their, their experiences. And so they don't read other people very well. And they can become quite paranoid and suspicious and distrustful of other people. Like in my example earlier, their spouse is distant and cold, and they're like, oh, you know, they have a, this is an inability to mentalize. They're looking at a quiet spouse, and through distortion and through distorted working models, they're paranoid and they're like, oh, this means that my spouse wants to leave me, or this means that my spouse is, is thinking about cheating on me. And uh, this is a, a problem with mentalization, a problem with being able to accurately understand the mind of someone else it, and or the distortion thereof. Research has actually looked into mentalization and what it is associated with. And so what they found through research is that uh, un- underdeveloped mentalization processes are associated with borderline personality disorder externalizing difficulties like being aggressive with other people, conduct problems, somatization, meaning that you convert your stress into bodily pain or bodily functions that are negative. Uh, People with an underdeveloped mentalization process are prone to more internalizing or externalizing problems in children and adolescents. So if you're a child or a teenager with difficulty mentalizing, you'll have 
both the likelihood. You'll just have a lot of emotional problems in a nutshell. Um, there's lower levels of agreement in parent and teen report of their uh, internalizing symptoms. So in other words, teenagers will uh, teenagers and parents won't wonder, won't really understand each other. And many, many other problems have been found in the research as a result of mentalization issues. Most notably in my world as a couples therapist, I find that couples will have a tremendous amount of conflict when they have an inability to mentalize. And I, this is one of the primary things that I work on. I don't always frame it in my mind as a mentalization process. I'm more thinking about it as an attachment process. But uh, so many couples will come to therapy or have troubles because they're misinterpreting the intentions of the other person. And the individuals are not communicating effectively about their inner experience. So just as, as an example... So let's just go with the example I gave and sort of go into the future a little bit. So husband comes home, sees wife, is quiet. Husband has trouble mentalizing and thinks, oh, she must want to leave me. She wants to uh, cheat on me or something bad is about to happen. And so he starts to pull back. He said, well, I better, I better pull back. And he goes to his office and doesn't come out for a long time. Wife notices this and thinks, feels the energy and is like, you know, what's going on here? Is, am I being punished? You know, what did I do wrong? And, you know, he's always doing this to me. He, he's just, he, he doesn't care about my feelings. So again, this is a mentalization problem. Instead of knowing what's really happening with the husband, she's interpreting it as a personal attack. So then she bursts into the office and says something like, so are you just going to stay in here all night long? And again, the husband, because of a mentalization issue, he has a hard time interpreting what's happening here accurately, and he interprets it, again, as a personal attack. He also has an inability or a lack of or a diminished ability to mentalize his own mind of knowing, okay, she just burst into my office and accused me of something. I feel hurt. But because they didn't give enough mirroring of their emotions when they were young, they both don't really even understand what they're going through. They don't, they don't even understand what's really happening right now is they're both afraid of losing their spouse. All they can really identify with is that they're angry and they feel uh, justified in attacking the other person. And the you know conflict spins out of control from there. So when parents help children with their mentalization process through secure attachment and by mirroring their emotions and explaining things about their mind and, and, um, and other people's minds, then people in this situation are much more likely to navigate it in an accurate and functional way. So husband comes home, sees that wife is cold or not cold, being quiet. And he says, well, you know, that could mean a lot of things. Could mean that she wants to leave me, but probably not. Probably just means she's stressed out based on my experience with her. She's, she's probably just stressed out about work or something, or she's tired or whatever. And so that compels him to or he just has a big question mark. He's just like, I have no idea why she's, and I'm not going to invent some idea about why she's doing this, so I'm, I should ask her. Honey, you seem pretty quiet. Is everything okay? And so a completely different sequence of things happens at that point, right? Uh, there's no attachment injuries that are going back and forth between these two people simply because 
they have the ability to know their own mind, know their own emotions, and accurately know other people's minds, or, you know, within reason, are pretty accurate about other people. And the last thing I'll say about mentalization and reflective function is that research by Fonagy et al. in 1995 found that when you have insecurely attached parents, so parents who have an insecure attachment style, but they have a ability for mentalization or high reflective function, they were more likely to have securely attached babies. So let me drill down on this a little bit, because again, this has a lot to do with public policy. You know, we often will say, geez, you know, if someone has a lot of attachment insecurity, they're borderline, they're disorganized, they're narcissistic, then they're just kind of doomed to have screwed up kids, right? But this is not true. If, if you can have a severely uh, uh, insecurely attached parent, but if for whatever reason they've learned how to reflective, uh, you know, and mirror and reflect on their children's emotional state and their experience, then the children of these insecurely attached parents will be securely attached to their parents. So we need to help everyone uh, to, and I guess the opposite would be true as well. If you have a secure attached parent who was raised well, but for whatever reason, they don't have a good ability with reflective function, parenting reflective function to their children, then the child will grow up to be insecure attachment. So we need to help everybody understand the difference between good reflective function with children and bad reflective function. And a lot of parents just naturally know this, either through modeling or just instinct, that you need to help kids with their emotional states. But a lot of people don't. I mean, where would they learn about that? Some people, due to culture, have these ideas like, well, that's spoiling my kid, or, well, I don't know, they'll figure it out on their own. I, I don't really know what they're experiencing. Or, I don't know, there's just, I've heard a lot of wackadoo ideas from parents that they get from culture. And which, of course, makes sense because no one is teaching them this. But teaching reflective function is not hard. You know, some of you out there, if if you've been exposed to these ideas for the first time, you're just like, oh, okay. And you'll probably never forget it, even if you're not parents yet or you, you know, might not ever be. But, But this, I've talked to good parents who... Um, are reminded by this. They're like, yeah, I guess I do that, but I can do that more. So the point is, is that we need to teach all of our parents in our communities about reflective function, how to do it, the benefits of it, and um, how to do it in a way that doesn't diminish your parenting and actually doesn't require much effort. You know, a lot of times what kids are doing when they are taking up our time is they actually want us to reflect on their experience. So a child is being difficult. They're supposed to go down for a nap and they're like, no, I'm not going to do it. Or it's bedtime. No, I'm not going to do it. A lot of times what will help kids in situations like that is if you become attuned and you reflect their experience, you just say, oh, I really get what you're going through right now. You don't want to go to bed right now. And I see that you're very upset you really don't want to stop watching TV or you really don't want to put down that iPad. You really want to continue playing that game. I get it. It's very upsetting. It's very disappointing. I get it. Half the time that will calm a child down. They'll be like, oh, okay. One, they feel like they're being heard and understood. Two, they feel like you're compassionate and warm and 
you have empathy for them. And three, when they have their experience reflected to them, they have an opportunity to reflect upon that. Because in the moment, they're having unbridled, undifferentiated emotion, and it feels like the end of the world to them. And when they hear you describe it to them, they say to themselves, oh, I guess I'm, it's, I guess it's not the end of the world because my parent is actually telling me that I'm just going to miss out on TV. And surely TV will be around tomorrow morning. It's not the end of the world. It's not the end of TV. So even though it feels like the end of the world and the end of TV, it's not, according to what my parent is saying. Oh, I see. I just have an emotion right now, and it's influencing my mood and influencing the way I feel. It's very important to do. We've talked about this before on the podcast, but it's worth repeating in this context, is that when you watch on Halloween the Jimmy Kimmel uh, prank videos, so these parents will uh, do a prank on their children the day after Halloween, and they'll they'll film them while they're doing this. It is the worst combination of cruelty and hilarity. I, I don't know what to think of it. Sometimes I'm laughing my ass off and other times I'm, I'm like, this is child abuse, honestly. But it is a good, ex- it, it is a good experiment of the uh, attachment style and mentalization processes of these children and the reflective function that the parents have done for these children up to that point. So the parents will go to the kids and they'll say, oh, Little Jenny, I'm so sorry that I ate all of your Halloween candy last night when you went to bed, and there's no more left. Well, in the montage of all the different children and their reactivity to this, you see very different reactions. Some of the children, this is, I guess, its own version of the uh, Ainsworth strange situation. It's like the Jimmy Kimmel Halloween candy uh, uh, procedure. Because some of the kids will decompensate. They'll, you, you just see it on their face. They're, just, they're, they're so upset. They're so devastated. And they're so disappointed. And some of them will just immediately get hostile and violent with their parents. Or they'll, they just seem like they've become unglued. Even older kids, like seven, eight-year-old kids. Whereas other kids will, re, will they'll have an emotional reaction. You know, you'll see a single tear kind of go down their face and they'll just be like, oh, really? You ate my candy? That sucks. But then they very quickly, some of the kids will just verbalize how they're feeling. They'll be like, mommy, you really disappointed me, they'll say. <laughs> or, or, well, that's okay, I guess. You know, they just have this ability to soothe themselves and they also have this ability to verbalize their experience in a mature way. And I don't know, because I don't have the data on this, but I suspect that the differences between those two groups or the difference on the spectrum is that the kids who react in a mature way, the parents have, up until that point, done a good job with parental reflective function and have mirrored to the children their own emotions to the point where the child understands their emotions, they understand how to communicate them, they understand how to regulate them, they understand that their emotions aren't devastating or and um you know, end of life experiences. They also have the ability to empathize with the parents and say like, well, I don't know, everybody does bad things sometimes. And I I guess my parents must have just been really hungry for candy. I mean, that's okay. Uh, I guess I could have some empathy for that. I'll include that in my, you know, feelings right now. I won't feel just unbridled disappointment and and abandonment and rejection and disappointment. And that's all I'm going to feel, right? So 
I don't know if that makes sense to you, but <laughs> that makes sense to me. Anyway, all right. So that is the end of my uh, of this chapter. How how long did this take? Wow, it took under five hours. I thought it was going to be like eight hours. This chapter is only four hours ish. So let's go back to the beginning of this episode, and I'm going to reread those typical stories of avoidant and preoccupied people. And with this talk now behind us, I hope it's more clear what I was getting at. So this is a typical story of an avoidant person. He grew up in a cold family. He was a happy kid. So his parents didn't really feel the need to pay close attention to him. He was often left to his own devices as a child. His parents praised him for being so independent and responsible. Sometimes his parents were a little overly stern with him. He was good at sports. He was good in school. In high school, he went through a tough breakup with a girlfriend, and he decided he wouldn't allow himself to be that vulnerable ever again. In college, he dated women, but he never allowed himself to get that close to them. He broke a lot of hearts. He drank a lot of alcohol. He had a lot of sex, and sometimes he bragged too much. In his 20s, he eventually let his guard down and he fell in love again. His girlfriend complained about how distant he was sometimes. After a couple years, he found himself often fantasizing about being single again, but he didn't talk about it much. He never really talked about any of his internal life with other people. He didn't think others would really care, and he didn't think that others would really understand him. He was still drinking socially, sometimes he drank too much, and sometimes he worried about his marijuana use. He often felt very alone, but he didn't know how to reach out to other people. He didn't really know what to say. People saw him as being strong. People saw him as someone who uh, never got overly emotional. They saw him as very stable. They saw him as someone who built a really good life for himself. He seemed very dependable. He eventually got married. It was a good marriage, but then the marriage started to get very distant, and they got, and then after a while, they got really distant, and they fought sometimes. He thought she was illogical and silly and overly emotional, and she thought he was emotionless and distant and sometimes narcissistic. Then his wife said that she wanted a divorce from him. To him, this was completely out of the blue, and he was utterly devastated. He He had never felt this way before. He thought that he never would feel this way again, but here he was again. Someone told him he should go to therapy, so he did He didn't really want to go, but he was in crisis, so he thought he ought to go. In therapy, he didn't know what to talk about, but over time, he learned that he had avoidant attachment. The therapist helped him to understand that. He learned that he avoided his attachment needs by appearing strong and independent, but deep down, he was suffering from chronic loneliness, and his independent nature pushed other people away and sort of preserved that loneliness. And through the therapeutic relationship with the therapist, he began to heal from this early attachment injuries from these early attachment injuries. Okay. So now let's go to a typical story. Well, so let's pause here for a second. So in this typical story, now, not all avoidant people are like this, obviously. We're talking about 7 billion people on the planet, 7 billion plus. We can't all categorize them into these four categories. But I think this is a pretty common general story of someone who is avoiding attachment. Now, this is someone who is shall we say, slightly avoidant or, or moderate to slight. At higher levels of avoidance, we would see more overt avoidance and more overt narcissism, more overt uh, antisocial 
and other kinds of problems like that, more paranoia or something. Okay, so now a typical story of a preoccupied person. And I gendered these things as typical because men are socialized to be more avoidant, women are socialized to be more preoccupied. But remember that plenty of preoccupied people are male and plenty of avoidant people are female. So just really try to pound that into your head. Um, all right, so a typical story of a preoccupied person. So she grew up in a chaotic family. Her parents fought a lot right in front of her. Her dad would drink too much and disappear overnight sometimes. She remembered trying to soothe her mom when she was upset. She was okay in school. She had a lot of friends. She was more mature than her peers. Her teachers praised her a lot. She was good in drama class. In high school, she thought about boys a lot. She had a tendency to develop intense crushes on boys. And she would later say that she was always attracted to the bad boys at school. She was always trying to find Mr. Right, but she kept getting hurt by these boys, really, really hurt. She was artistic and would express herself through her art about how hurt she was. As an adult, she had a number of intense relationships, romantic relationships and intense friendships, not just romantic, but her friendships were also very intense. Most of these relationships would end badly, if not all of them would end badly. A number of times she thought she had met Mr. Right. But with each one, she would, um, and with each one, she would fantasize about getting married and having a family with him. And with some of them, they would even talk overtly about getting married. She really liked talking about marriage, and and she really liked talking about building a family and life together with these with these boys when she would date them. But each time, they would disappoint her. One of her boyfriends cheated on her, and that ended their relationship. Another boyfriend refused to plan for the future, and that eventually led to the breakup. Another boyfriend became too emotional when they fought, and that eventually led to the breakup. After each breakup, she was devastated. She would beat herself up for falling in love again. Why would, why would she not learning from her mistakes? Why wouldn't she realize that men are pigs, that men are conflict avoidant, that they are commitment avoidant? They're com- all these men in Seattle, they're all commitment phobic. And she had trouble controlling her emotions sometimes. Sometimes when she was particularly stressed out, she would even think about suicide. But that was pretty rare. She also started to realize that other people didn't really care much about loyalty as she did. She realized that she had a lot to love to give, but no one really cared about love these days. She cried herself to sleep sometimes, hoping that someone would really understand her. And she decided to go to therapy because she was really suffering. She found a good therapist who listened well. And she really liked her therapist. I mean, she really liked her therapist. She wanted to go to therapy all the time. She convinced her therapist to see her twice a week. She felt like things were going really well in therapy. But then one day, the therapist seemed bored with her. And she got the sense that her therapist didn't really care about her feelings. So in the next session, she was quiet and reserved. And when the therapist asked to talk about it, why are you being so reserved? She didn't really know what to say. She was a combination of anger and sad and, and desperate. She didn't really know what to do. Over time, the therapist figured out and told her that she had signs of preoccupied attachment. This led to a lot of discoveries for her, and she began in therapy to heal from her attachment injuries. So this was a story, and if I hope that after this chapter of the theory of attachment disorder and the different attachment styles— not attachment disorder, the, the theory of attachment 
theory <laughs> and attachment styles. I hope that this makes more sense, right? That you would, again, this is not a universal story, but I would say it's fairly typical. It's the broad strokes anyway. And this is, again, a, a, a minor to moderate version of preoccupied attachment. So what we see here is someone who is very focused on relationships and is very intense with their relationships, falls in love very quickly, is often in a relationship and really wants to meld with other people when when she meets them. You know, she's she's very thirsty, she's very hungry, she's been five days without any food and suddenly there's a graham cracker out in the open and she's going to grab it, she's going to revel in eating that graham cracker. <laughs> So, all right. So let's uh, let's br- let's summarize everything here. Let's go through my notes here. Again, main contributors: Bowlby, Ainsworth, Mary Main, Peter Fonagy. Uh, at the base of attachment theory is evolution. Bowlby asserted, and and through research with other animals, asserted very uh, convincingly that us humans evolved to attach that we evolved behaviors to keep our parents close to us and keep us close to our parents because it increased the likelihood of our survival by protecting us from predators because we were prey for many animals in Africa. It helped us to get food because the closer we are to our parents, the more likely we're going to get food. It it helped us to learn about our environment, which contributed to our survival because our parents will uh, model for us how to how to live in the world, particularly keeping us from danger like snakes and stuff. And it helped us with learning how to interact socially, which helped us to be not rejected by the tribe, which is very important to survival. So over time, us and other social animals evolved an instinct or an inherited motivation to engage in attachment behavior, particularly when we're in danger both as children and as parents and as spouses, right? We are attached to our spouses. So many other animals exhibit this as well. We will uh, reward, so infants will reward their parents for paying attention to them by laughing and smiling and lots of eye contact and funny vocalizations. When they feel threat, the, the child will run to the, the parent. When, when they can't see the parent, they'll cry out. All these are called attachment behaviors. And there are different phases to attachment. In the early phases, say zero to six months, the infant doesn't really discriminate between different people because it doesn't know that uh, there's a primary caregiver. It's just it's like, I don't care. Anyone who takes care of me is fine. Six or seven months to 10 months, this is when children start to discriminate. You, you know, you are, you are my primary caregiver. I want you to take care of me all the time because you're the one I can really depend on. And then 10 to 18 months is when the emerging uh, ability to depend on other people as well, not just the primary caregiver. And let's see, skipping down here, we talked about the strange situation classification for Ainsworth and how she initially found that you had securely attached children, preoccupied children, and avoidant children. Later, Maine and Solomon would discover the disorganized group of people, which is a rare group of people. They're the people who have sort of bizarre attachment behaviors. 
We have research here that connects childhood attachment with adult attachment. It can change over time for sure. It's not a direct correlation. It's not like it's, you know, the correlation between childhood attachment and adult attachment is actually not that, it's not super strong because a lot of things happen between childhood and adulthood and adulthood. You can have uh, changing circumstances. You can have events that are good or bad in your life. You can heal from the past. So you can go to therapy. There's just so many different things that can happen between the time you're a child and the time you are measured as an adult. We had the four attachment styles. We had secure attachment, which is the um, situation in which your parents are very attuned to you, which is sensitive and responsive to your emotional needs. And then we have a bunch of insecure attachment styles. We have the avoidant attachment style, preoccupied and disorganized. And remember that uh, all of these are on a spectrum and that you can have slightly avoidant people and heavily avoidant people. You can have slightly preoccupied people and severely preoccupied people. And disorganized people are a combination of both or neither is another way of looking at it. And it's always extreme. So although avoidant and preoccupied, if you label someone with those labels, you don't really know the severity. But when you label someone with disorganized, you definitely know that they are at the severe end of the spectrum. And also know that some people can have slight avoidant or preoccupation. Like I've talked about this on the podcast before. I am, to my estimation, I'm probably like 70, 70% secure. I would suspect that very few people are beyond 80% secure. Uh, that's just, you know, there's no way to measure that exactly. But but I would, uh, in terms of my model of understanding people, I would say that very few people are above 80 or 90% secure. So I am upper at the upper end because my parents were, um, you know, for the most part, pretty attuned to me. Uh, my older siblings were attuned to me as well. And I am about 70% secure attachment. Then I, the rest of the 30% is mostly avoidant personality. And then I also have a smattering of preoccupied uh, personality and attachment style. So I'd say I have about, I think in another episode, I said I was 80% secure, 15% avoidant and 5% preoccupied. So some people would say, oh, you're a mixture of preoccupied and avoidant. Therefore you're disorganized. No. Uh, you're only disorganized if you have severe both or neither. Like I said, another, I, I kind of like the, the perspective of saying that disorganized is when you're like pre-developing of an ability to cope. Bob Gettle has been on the podcast before and he's talked about how he is mostly preoccupied, but at times he's disorganized. So one way of looking at it could be is that when he's at his worst, he's disorganized, but when he's at his best, he slips into some somewhere on the spectrum of preoccupied. Um, but again, I don't want to imply that preoccupied people are always better off than disorganized, because definitely you can be extremely preoccupied and just as bad as disorganized people. Anyway, so we got we had preoccupation, we had avoidant, and we had disorganized. I've explained that well enough, hopefully, because that will help when we go into other chapters. We talked about working models of the self and working models of others and how that can affect things and also be altered over time. 
And we talked about mentalization and reflective functioning, the ability to mentalize, the ability to brainize other people. Oh, you have a mind. I am now aware of your mind and your motivations and your thoughts. I have the ability to conceptualize as accurately as possible that other people have minds, they have their own experiences, and they have their own reasons for being who they are and behaving the way that they do. It's a very important thing, particularly for therapists to be able to do. All right. Well, that was quite a journey, and I hope that you learned something there, and I can't wait to get into some of these other chapters. I don't think any other chapters in and of themselves are going to be this long, so what an adventure this was for me. (laughs) It's always just such a trip to do these deep dives, because I've been working on this deep dive for months, and it's interesting to be looking at my notes and just noticing the words that are flying out of my mouth just so readily. It's like, wow, I've really downloaded this shit into my brain. So uh, I just want to share that little fourth wall for you. Let me know what you think uh, to this whole thing, but particularly to this to this chapter. Uh, do you have you discovered anything about yourself? I because I really hope that you have. Because for me. Discovering this theory years ago really informed me about myself. I would I would notice that I would have these these discomforts in my marriage, and I would have these reactions. I would regret being weird with my wife at times, and I would look back and say, "Oh, that was that was my avoidant attachment kicking or that was my 5% preoccupied attachment kicking in." That's interesting. That isn't it interesting how the literature and the research points towards different tendencies that I just basically fell right into. I I was I was a quintessential case of preoccupied attachment that day. Isn't that interesting that I'm not alone. It's a it's a known thing. There's a reason for it. And it helps me to understand my interpretations, that I can look at myself, as I've learned through attachment theory, I look at myself and I say, okay, right now you're having a avoidant attachment urge to run away. And in the past, you would have been like, okay, let's go with that. Let's go with that feeling. That, that's a rational, functional feeling, run away. And through understanding attachment theory, what I learned was, no, 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 although it feels very much like the right thing to do right now. Right now, I must be feeling very insecure in terms of my attachments, and I'm resorting to an old coping mechanism, which is through avoidance and running away in my mind. And ultimately, that is going to harm me. I'm going to, if I go along with this vibe, I'm going to be alone. I'm going to hurt other people's feelings, and that is not what I want in life. So I'm going to fight against that in my mind, I'm going to move towards vulnerability with other people. Because once we get to therapy, there's like prescriptions for the different attachment styles about how do you combat this? What what are the common things that you have to focus on to circumvent your attachment style coping tendencies, your defensive structures? So let me know if uh, this episode has helped in that way, because I really hope it did. I can't think of another deep dive that I've done that I would think would be so universal to the listeners, honestly. Uh, if you're a therapist out there, is this helping you with your work? I, I'm just really curious because I find it to be so useful, <laughs> just so, so useful. Like I said in a previous episode or the earlier part of this one, I think about this every day. 
multiple times a day. I'm like, oh, there we go. Oh, there's that thing. Oh, there's that thing. Don't don't pay attention there. Or here's the cure to that one. Oh, you must, if you're having that thought, you must be feeling distant. Oh, you're having that urge. You must be feeling hurt by this attachment injury. Here is the solution to that. It's, it's extremely useful and um, has really improved my life and my therapy with my clients and my clients' lives, I believe. We can thank John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth and all the others for that. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really, really do. Thank you.